tonight on Perch Exploitation. William Blake from Auguries of Innocence, 1803. A truth that's told with bad intent beats all the lies you can invent. It is right, it should be so. Man was made for joy and woe. And when this we rightly know, through the world we safely go. The babe that weeps the rod beneath writes revenge in realms of death. the infant's faith shall be mocked in age and death. He who shall teach the child to doubt, the rotting grave shall ne'er get out. He who respects the infant's faith triumphs over hell and death. The child's toys and the old man's reasons are the fruits of the two seasons. I'm gonna die. <laughs> oh boy. Um, uh, so- that's the penalty for impersonating Chris Kringle. <laughs> You're immediately smote. I guess so, because 
the beer went straight down my throat. Well, sorry, <laughs> folks. Uh, Santa couldn't be here anymore. Uh, but that's okay, because Nick and Dan are here, and you're listening to the Yuletide episode of Project Exploitation. Let's ring the bells, ladies and gentlemen. I am Nick Cheney, as I said before, and with me, of course, is my trusty little reindeer. Yeehaw, little doggy. Dan, how are you today? <clears throat> 3615, Code Pere Noel. It's a Christmas home invasion flick where a young kid fights a lunatic. He thought Santa would be a good guy. He thought that Santa would bring prezzies that night. He thought that Santa would have some eggnog. He didn't know Santa'd kill his cute dog, but he did, and that's just execrable. Wow, that is a gift to all of us, Dan. Um, <laughs> what uh, what song was that, by the way? It's a super deep cut. I'm really sorry. I was gonna say it's a song, a song by Amy Mann from. It's an album track. I don't think she was even a single. It was called Thirty One Today. I really like it, and I just kept thinking Thirty Six Fifteen, Thirty Six Fifteen, Thirty One. Yeah. I don't what know. album was that on? Out of curiosity, do you know? Uh, I think it's on. Uh, the one that's like the cartoon letters for swearing, but basically it says fucking smilers. Oh, yeah. Okay. I know. I mean, I know the album, but yeah. I think it's that one. All right. It's it's the one after the Forgotten Arm, which is probably my favorite by her. That is just a fantastic album. Well, you know me. I'm a Bachelor number two kind of guy because of the Magnolia connections there. So. Oh, yeah. Uh, no, it's fantastic. But yeah, it's kind of a deep cut. Well... That was Men on Man, and uh, as we segue into this <laughs> beautiful Christmas episode of... Uh, <laughs> Men on Man. We're talking about Amy Mann now. <laughs> no, and uh, yeah, we here at Project Exploitation want to wish you all a happy holiday. And uh, to do that, we're going to celebrate with the French. Mm -hmm. <laughs> because today we are, of course, talking about the 1989 movie... That's right. You guessed it. 3615 Code Pere Noel, also known as Deadly Games, also known as Dial Code Santa Claus, also known as Game Over, also known as Hide and Freak, also known as John Hughes' Home Alone. But we'll talk about that uh, later on. <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, Dial Code Santa Claus, as I like to call it, yeah. uh, was released in 1989. It was written and directed by Rene Manzor, and it's got a cast here of uh, Brigitte uh, Fossey as Julie, the mother, uh, Louis Ducrot as Poppy, which I love saying after I watch this movie, because he has to scream Poppy so many times. I mean, it's, it's adorable each time, but- Oh, I agree. But it's definitely, uh, it's definitely a lot. And uh, Patrick Florsheim as uh, Le Pere Noel, <laughs> or is he? Mm. And of course, Alain Lalanne, or he's credited in the movie as Alain Mussy or Moosey, right. as the character of Thomas de Fremont, who is really ostensibly the actual main character. And a cast of others and here and there, but those are the main players in this sorted Christmas drama. Mm -hmm. Before I hand it off to Dan, I just want to say that, of course, we chose this because it is a Christmas film, but it is unique because it is a Christmas horror thriller children's film. I mean, you know, that's the other thing about this, and we'll get into it later, is that this really is 
I wouldn't say necessarily for children, but it's not not. Like, it's not violent enough to truly traumatize children, at least in a graphic way. Mm-hmm. Uh, certainly it could <laughs> in, its, in its own ways, but that's kind of why this is such a uniquely exploitative Christmas treat for the season, because it takes a package that you know quite well, as in, you know, these kind of Christmas uh, tales, including a movie that would come right after it that does make it more sentimental and whatnot. Uh, but it does not hold back in the area of the macabre. So, uh, Dan, Jeremy Brooks, uh, why don't you hit us with the synopsis of Dial Code Santa Claus? All right, here we go. <clears throat> it's the morning of Christmas Eve in Paris, 1989. A seemingly simple-minded but a bit too wild-eyed homeless man watches in beguilement as a dozen or so neighborhood kids engage in a snowball fight on a residential side street. He's so enthralled by their innocent play that he tries to join in, but only succeeds in scattering the group when they sensibly notice that he's, quote, not a member of the gang. Next, we're introduced to Thomas, a 10-year-old computer prodigy living in a gigantic ancient, and geographically isolated family castle in a wooded area outside the Parisian suburbs. Along with his faithful and infinitely patient dog, J.R., Thomas acts out an elaborate Rambo-inspired game of white hats and black hats through the seemingly endless array of rooms, complete with jungles of strategically placed rubber tree plants, suction cup-tipped arrows, toy grenades and Kalashnikovs, a full-scale decommissioned jet fighter, throwing stars, and sound effects of bullet sprays and bombs blasting through the speakers everywhere. The game ends when Thomas catches J.R., dutifully playing the role of the bad guy, in a net under a trap door, and his mother, Julie, calls him to breakfast and to wake up his grandpa before he, quote, frees the dog. Thomas's grandfather gamely plays along when Thomas handcuffs the two of them together. One gets the feeling this is a typical morning ritual. At breakfast, Thomas and grandpa still handcuffed to each other clown around and munch on croissants while Grandpa takes his insulin and medications. We learn through the three's easy and affectionate conversation that Thomas's father died some time ago. Thomas mentions that nowadays a kid can just send his wish list directly to Santa Claus via Minitel, a French-invented early 80s prefigure to the World Wide Web in which one could connect their personal computer via a modem-like telephone number, the titular 36.15, to terminals which at the time dotted public spaces and shopping centers throughout the country. This facilitated elementary text communications, transmitted news stories, allowed users to make travel reservations, and so on. Despite this high-tech delivery system, Thomas decides to hedge his bets and gives his mother a hard copy of his wish list for her to mail to the North Pole from her workplace, a grand department store she oversees for the print temp chain, anchored in the heart of the Parisian shopping districts. Julie informs them she'll be late tonight and not to wait up before being whisked to work by her chauffeur, right-hand man, and semi-clandestine boyfriend, Roland. Julie expresses to Roland her concern that Thomas has begun questioning the reality of Santa Claus, and as a result, in their morning meeting with Printemps executives, she directs them to shoot the works and hire more clowns, acrobats, jugglers, and department store Santas for the day. Thomas attempts to communicate on his PC via Minitel with someone claiming to be the real Santa Claus, but his friend Pilot who no longer believes in St. Nick, remains dubious. We soon discovered that this pretend Santa is, in fact, the oddly intense derelict we saw in the opening credits, using a Minitel kiosk at a Paris train station. The man, who henceforth, for clarity's sake, we will refer to as Satanic Santa, or Satanta, learns from Thomas that his mother manages the nearby behemoth Printemp, 
and on a whim decides to get a job as one of the department store Santas for the day. But he doesn't last long. When a little girl pulls off his fake beard, he slaps her in a rage, and Julie, who witnesses the altercation, promptly fires him. Sent to the personnel office to be processed out, he covertly overhears Roland on the phone giving Julie and Thomas's address to a print temp delivery driver. Meanwhile, Thomas uses his extensive technical expertise to connect some dozen CCTV cameras throughout the castle, all controlled by his push-button-laden armband with a tiny TV monitor embedded in the hopes of at last recording real documentary proof of Santa Claus when he slides down their chimney tonight. After dinner, Thomas and Grandpa play a role-playing game while Thomas muses again on the likelihood of Santa's existence. After Printemps closes its doors at 10 p.m., Julie calls Thomas to make sure he's going to bed, informing him that if Santa sees that he's still awake, he'll become very angry and turn into an ogre. Around this time, the Printemp delivery man arrives at the castle's groundskeeper and chef's house to drop off Thomas's prezies, but Satanta, who has stowed away in the back of the van, murders the driver and the two caretakers. Satanta sprays his beard and hair white with a can of fake snow, then does indeed shimmy down the castle's chimney in full Santa regalia. Thomas, half asleep and hiding under a table, is initially delighted, but J.R., sensing something seriously amiss, attacks Satanta, who savagely kills J.R. with a close-at-hand fruitcake trowel. Thomas, horrified, runs upstairs to awaken Grandpa, and the two make a break for the garage. Unfortunately, Julie's car, for which Thomas had just finished repairs that afternoon, goes on the fritz again, and Satanta begins sledgehammering the car to bits with them trapped inside. Through some misdirection, Thomas and Grandpa are able to vacate the car and escape through one of the many hidden passageways Thomas has constructed throughout the castle. They hide for a time inside a cavernous secret room filled with toys that belonged to Thomas's father and generations of ancestors before. Grandpa marvels that he's never seen this chamber before, and Thomas admits that it was a special secret he and his father kept. Thomas gives Grandpa a walkie-talkie, grabs the other for himself, and attempts to sneak his way to his mother's office in the castle, which is a separate phone line which Satanta doesn't know about and therefore hasn't cut. When that plan goes south and Satanta surprises Thomas, he's forced out onto one of the castle's more treacherous snowy ledges. Thomas makes his way to his computer room window and has just enough time to send a text asking for help to anyone he can think of. Julie, driving home in the snow, becomes increasingly alarmed when she can't reach anyone at the castle or the caretaker's house, and contacts the police, requesting that they send a patrol car to check on the family. Thomas and Grandpa cleverly trick and trap Satanta in a sauna, but quickly realize they still can't get out because the entire castle is stuck in an automated lockdown mode, and without his armband, which was accidentally smashed in the melee, Thomas will have to perform the time-consuming task of cutting open the walls with an oxetylene torch to get to the master controls. In the meantime, the two decide to hide Grandpa in plain sight inside a suit of armor on display in the foyer. Thomas succeeds in unlocking the castle's door, but is discovered by the freshly liberated Satanta, who brutally slashes Thomas's leg. Before Satanta can do further harm, Thomas's friend Pilo, who received his SOS text message earlier, arrives. Thomas tells him to run, and Satanta gives him chase, but Pilo and his bicycle narrowly escapes and crucially buys Thomas time to regroup. Thomas buries his beloved JR, fashions a makeshift leg splint, and proceeds to set a plethora of traps across the castle, using formerly innocuous items like sharpies, darts, toy arrows, a model train, etc., raiding a campaign of asymmetrical warfare down upon Satanta. At some point in the midst of this series of Rube Goldbergian bushwhacks, tripwires, and abbeyscades, Satanta spots a policeman poking around, presumably called by Julie or possibly Pilot. 
Satanta dispatches him and leaves his body in the woods. Julie, in a panic to get home, hits an icy patch and careens into a guardrail. But Roland, who has stayed behind after closing to square the day's receipts and prepare a cash drop, discovers Julie, shaken but not seriously harmed, and helps her from the wreck. Thomas sees the patrol car outside and suggests this is the perfect time to get away. But Grandpa, badly weakened and in need of insulin, can't be moved. Thomas races to the gardener and chef's home to get insulin, but on the way back is attacked yet again by Satanta, who seems unable to distinguish murder from elaborate play and who appears to be suffering under the delusion that all of the night's events have just been an elaborate game of hide-and-seek. During their struggle, Thomas trips over the officer's body, grabs his gun, and limps hurriedly back to the foyer just in time to administer the insulin shot and save Grandpa's life. Satanta appears again, menacing the exhausted and still badly injured Thomas. Grandpa awakens, finds the policeman's sidearm lying there, and fires once from the floor, killing Satanta finally. Julie and Roland arrive to the dismal sight of Satanta's splayed body with a clearly traumatized Thomas kneeling above and leaning slightly on the brightly lit Christmas tree behind him. As Roland tends to Grandpa, Julie runs to comfort Thomas, throwing her arms around his head as he quietly murmurs, It's my fault, Mom. I wanted to see Santa Claus. Well, he's right about that. It is his fault. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, and I hope he learned an important goddamn lesson. I mean, that's that's the only thing you can really take away from this movie. Is uh, I, I agree. He needs to grow up. Yep. Uh, and he should have already done it much sooner. So Probably around three. All right. Good episode. Uh, yes. All right. Thank you. Uh, be sure to tip your servers and get your parking validated. Don't forget, Thursday is ladies' night. Oh, Thursday? What? Oh, I, said, I didn't know it was Thursday. Uh, I, I don't know. Maybe not. <laughs> All uh, right. Well, thank you very much for that synopsis, Dan. A reminder that we here at Project Exploitation write our own synopses. So if you like what you heard... Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So I guess we should open this up with our opening thoughts. Dan, you want to go first or do you want me to go first? Um, no, you go first. I'm, I'm kind of curious about your initial take. Okay. Yeah. I've said this before on this very podcast, but uh, it's that time of year again. So I'll say it again. I love Christmas. I love Christmas horror movies. I love everything about all of this shit. Mm-hmm. Even the worst christmas horror movies that i give out like a half a star because it's not good like it's garbage day (laughs) well i wouldn't give that one a half star there's at least enough of a good movie in there that's at least like a mixed bag you know passable well there's enough of a good movie that was the first movie i was gonna say technically speaking (laughs) i'm actually not a huge fan i like it but not a huge fan of the first silent night deadly night right i'm way more of a black christmas christmas evil guy as we've uh, demonstrated already Mm -hmm. go listen to those episodes to the point where I almost prefer the second one because I'm getting the best parts of the first movie, <laughs> and then I'm just getting whatever the second one is trying to do with, you know, Garbage Day and, and all the other ilks of its kind. So that's that's kind of a sensible sensible explanation, actually. That makes a lot of sense yeah. to me. But yeah, no, I eat this shit up. I love it. Uh, it genuinely does boost my Christmas spirit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and this movie, uh, Dial Code to Santa Claus, is no different. Uh, I think it's great. I think. It is such an interesting Christmas horror film because it's really the only one I can think of that is truly from the perspective of a child. Mm. You know, there are some I can think of that have children in them, but are still aimed and 
from a more omnipotent, you know, perspective. Mm. And and this one, everything about the production of this movie, from the cinematography to the score to the pacing, you know, there are a few scenes, obviously, where we jump out of Thomas's orbit, you know, like when we have to check in on the, the Santa Claus himself and uh, his mother at the toy shop. But outside of that... When this movie is dealing with the central conflict and and really just the main narrative, this is from a child's point of view in every executive decision uh, along the line that was made uh, supports that uh, as the movie goes on. And I think it's fascinating because it really does both make this movie slightly cozy in a way. Mm -hmm. I mean, definitely, definitely, you know, like that. There's some gauzy cinematography here that is gorgeous to look at and really does make me feel like I am sitting next to a, a warm fire, you know, at Christmas time. While also, when the horror is happening uh, explicitly, it interrupts the movie in a way that only happens to a child, you know, like where yeah. a child can be happy one moment and then because they don't quite understand what is happening, you know, I mean, the whole. The scene in which the dog is murdered is is right is is very very well done because of the way Thomas is underneath the table washing the feet of what he thinks is Santa Claus and and it is and it's played straight it is played from T- Tomas's point of view like this is the greatest thing that's ever happened and certainly there's something to the idea that maybe the director was going for dramatic irony you know like we're watching the movie so we know better and therefore it's almost like a black comedy but mm. i think it works on that level but the level i really appreciate this movie is that no this was completely intentionally supposed to be a child's fantasy turning into a child's nightmare and i think it's well supported throughout the entire text of the movie from like the mansion itself like that's that is something a child dreams up you know and i don't mean like oh it's unrealistic obviously it is but it's also just it is something that an adult would never think to think and so (laughs) it's 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 little things like that where i it's why it's like the ultimate child's horror film because here he is living out like every child's dream which is to essentially you know truly be able to be a play actor because that's what play is when you're a child you know is acting in your own giant mansion to the point where you have secret passages i mean that's such a kid thing right oh totally like we all we all want to find this like behind the bookcase that there's more to the, the house and whatnot and here he has that all and what's terrifying is that it can be used against him you know and and that this place of play is now a place of hunt and sporting and in a way that transcends his usual because he likes to play that kind of thing you know he's doing the rambo thing and he you know he's very much playing in things that have a whole hotbed of uh tragic complexities that are way beyond his comprehension as a kid and it's not it's no fault of him or anything like that but it is somewhat dark to think about a kid being like i want to pretend like i'm in vietnam and you know whatever right right especially Two, coming from being a French film, which I find very funny uh, as far as French occupation and whatnot. Uh, Indeed. Yeah, I've been reading up on the Vietnam conflict. What what of it? Uh, yeah, well, you'll, you'll notice he's not uh, reenacting DNBM foo. 
It's not like, yeah. ah, yes, they will bring the artillery over here. We did not expect them to do that. Damn it. Yeah, I've been singing the French national anthem. Oh, my God, I know. Uh, All those poor paratroopers. Anyway, sorry, go on. No, no, and so and that's what I love most about this movie, is that it is from a child's perspective. And it's not, I hesitate to almost say that, too, because sometimes that can be a detriment to a movie. Not because it's inherently a bad choice, but because there's almost always an easy way to do that that is so visually unsatisfying and usually orally uh, unsatisfying where it gets too uh, cheesy or kitschy and whatever. But this really doesn't have that. I think it helps that it is a Christmas movie. There's something about Christmas that brings out the kid and all of us when, when we're into the season. So it's such an, uh, it's already a prime thing for a lot of us to make that leap anyway. And and yeah, I, I think it's I think it's a great movie. I think there's a few moments in here where I don't actually think the tone is consistent to a, to its detriment. Mm-hmm. And I'll get into that a little bit later. There's only like one I can really think of. And it's a, such a small moment or whatever. So I don't think it's a perfect film, but um, I have a lot of fun with it. I think it's like a great Christmas movie because that's the other thing is sometimes Christmas horror movies are kind of boring because, okay, yes, you set your slasher at Christmas time, but is there a reason? Is, is there, you know, could this really be any other slasher? And mm-hmm. are you just trying to get people like me to watch it? Because I will, uh, <laughs> because it's set at Christmas. And yeah, I'll probably even give it a pass because of that. But it doesn't mean it's good, you know, whatever. Whereas this is distinctly a Christmas story. You can't tell this specific story without the wonder that Christmas means to a child, without the uh, larger-than-life, you know, lore that obviously comes with the season and whatnot, and, and how easily manipulatable that is from an adult's perspective. Even if, technically, the villain in this movie is not, uh, I guess, depending on someone's interpretation of the villain, because we're not really given a lot of information about him. True. But even if we think that he's not actually conscious of this, and he's not... You know, like like you had alluded to, he's not possibly all there, so to speak. Yeah, and we'll we'll talk about the characterization of that guy, obviously, a little later. So, but overall, I, I think it's great. I love watching it, uh, and it's such a unique entry in the canon that there's really nothing else like it except for that one American movie that was made right after it. Hmm. But never heard of it. Yeah, <laughs> right. So, Dan, uh, what did you think about Dial Code Santa Claus? Well, I love uh, pretty much everything you said because it is true. It's it, like you said. It's um, you have the child's perspective, but with that comes this awful flip side. And you know, I was thinking of um, I kept thinking of William Blake's uh, you know, uh, poems of innocence and experience. You know, which uh, you know, true. Which I mean, this is also why we have that in the intro, which is uh. Uh, performed That's right. performed by Spencer Parks, I should say. So thank you, Spencer. And uh, we will link to your several podcasts as well as your film you're producing. So oh, yeah, they are very good, by the way. They the, are the podcasts, the podcasts, yeah. if you will. But I, I, I will the podcast, the podcast. I will say one more thing though. There's a great lyric by uh, Jim White actually for a song called Christmas Day, and he goes. But never the pleasure, you know, without some pain. And and it's like that's kind of a lesson you learn around this age if you're Thomas. You know, it's about that age, I'd say. I think uh, what you said about the visuals are absolutely true. I mean, I, I honestly think this film 
it's coming at the tail end of, of the 80s. Uh, it's 1989, like you said. And it's really a visual summation of almost like two styles, which almost never really link up, but are very much distinctively 80s and of their time. The first is, of course, 80s action films. I mean, which uh, one could argue that was definitely a, a period of uh, golden age action films, specifically Christmas related ones, Lethal Weapon, Die Hard. Uh, you know, pretty much anything Shane Black wrote, <laughs> with the exception of The Last Boy Scout, oddly enough. Anyway, and, and so uh, I think there's that. So there's this summation of that, and, 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 and you get this really nice encapsulation that's like transmits the entire story in just the opening image. And it's uh, it, it basically tells you all the themes. And it's a snow globe of the Eiffel Tower, gorgeously wrapped in this velvety cyan glow and it's suddenly crushed by a garbage truck tire and it's like this is one of those movies where the image at the beginning gives you the entire film in thumbnail like uh, i almost forgot about that opening like you know that opening second of that image and and when i was rewatching it i was like oh man i forget just how perfect of a prelude of of a visual metaphor that is well it does like i said it feels like like blue velvet where you have this opening shot and you know the guy falls over you know the father jeffrey's father falls over and the hose is you know the dog's licking the hose and then you go under and there's the the the, uh insects underneath or like the wild bunch where you're watching like these kids uh basically poking a scorpion that's being consumed by ants uh, or especially, actually, well, this is really telegraphed. I mean, it, that's one of its most brilliant conceits, I think, is um, Lars von Trier's Melancholia, you know, which you're literally seeing a poetic rendering of all the events that you're about to see in the film, but in this this elegant and supernatural way. It's it's gorgeous. But anyway, I so I think the opening shot in itself is gives me a feeling like, oh, I'm in the hands of somebody who knows exactly what he's doing. You know, this is only his second film directing, but he's already he's already got a clear idea of what he's going for. And I think at first, when, as I say about the action movie thing and the summation, when I first started hearing uh, the composer, uh, his pretty obvious rewrite of Survivor's Eye of the Tiger, like I thought it was a little too bald-faced at first of a ripoff, even for my sensibilities. And, and you know me, when I yeah. when we used to write music uh, for companies, it would be like we would do rewrites that were, you know, different, but very similar, clearly inspired. So like, I, we want an Eye of the Tiger type, and you'd be like, okay. <laughs> honestly, yeah. Like, it'd be like, uh, we want it to sound like, we want it to be more like this, but different. <laughs> As they say. And so I, even my sensibilities were not offended, but a little bruised for a moment. But then once I saw the visuals of Thomas preparing for battle and all that stuff kicked in, I totally caught the joke. And I was like, oh, brilliant. You know, and, and of course, like you said, there's this ironic element that doesn't take away from the innocence and the, and the beautiful other parts, but there's this ironic, you know, like the little sweaty arms dragging this plastic knife across the bow. It's very deeply funny and deeply uncomfortable. Too. <laughs> and, uh, you know, but there's just like the whole beginning, there's just this catalog of great homages that in the first scene alone, you've got like Rocky, obviously, Natch, you know, you've got the Rambo, you know, he's wearing the spirit gum under his eyes, the karate kid headband, the sword and throwing stars, the, you know, shuriken, if you will, that, that, which totally comes out of that time where Japan was our main rival slash obsession in the eighties. Uh, elsewhere, you've got like, you know, in his basement where he's got the, um, 
sound system and part of his lab setup, you've got like the blinking pink buttons and the patch bays, which are straight out of like war games and Project X. And there's the highly involved handshake thing that he and his mom do, which is, I mean, honestly, countless movies, but especially like Big is one example. You know, he's got the armband monitor controls, which is. Again, in the 80s, for some reason, we were super obsessed with like getting calculators on our wrists. I don't know what the deal was, but oh, yeah. I, I myself was caught up in it too. You know? Well, I mean, it was all over our sci fi, you know, like Babylon 5 has, yeah, I and mean, that was 90s, but Babylon 5 Still. feels like a product of the 80s at a lot of times. Oh, I agree. Uh, but with, yeah, the idea that communiques would be wrist centered, which we only finally got around to in the last two years. And even now, it's barely. You know, like we're not even close to it. And but so uh, anyway, no, I know it's kind of disappointing. I mean, I think you know probably some of it goes back to Dick Tracy, you know, and uh, Chester Gould's comic strip or something. But but you know, but then uh, and obviously this film talks in somewhat ironic terms, but also in sort of a wide-eyed Oshucks way, which I like. But it talks about the consolidation and commodification of the holidays, which you can see that in Gremlins, you can see it in Die Hard, uh, to a lesser extent, Lethal Weapon. There's that montage uh, about, uh, I guess it's, uh, it's about a third of the way through, because there's several montages, but the one with the really emotional pop song written by, which was actually written by uh, Rene Manzor's brother, Francis, by the way, that underscore where he, oh, you know what it is? It's, it's, it's the last third because he's burying his dog, JR, and he's putting out the traps and weaponry, which is very vintage, like last third of Predator and pretty much almost every quote, action hour-long TV show, especially the A-Team is probably the, the most obvious example. And I also thought I detected a little bit of Rocky Four in the montages, but at first I thought, no, 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 I've just got that on the brain because, you know, I'm reading, I just finished reading the Rocky Four novelization for this other podcast I'm doing uh, called Authorized, by the way. It's a great podcast. Check it out. But then I came across this quote from Elaine uh, Lalonde, who plays Thomas, as you say. It says, I remember going to see Rocky Four, where he fights the Russian and jumping and cheering in the final fight scene. He was like five at the time. I'd come home from watching those movies and I play and act them out. And 3615 was made at the end of that era. So it paid homage to all those earlier films. And there's another quote here somewhere. I'll, I'll, I'll see if I can find it. But basically he says, I think in some ways my dad was sort of writing this like he was seeing me growing up and he was knowing that the days of me acting out these elaborate fantasies were kind of numbered. And so it's bittersweet, you know, but at the same time, it was obviously inspired because uh, Alain Lalonde, I mean, he said he would do this like every day. So this was like a, a much grander scale version of what he was doing, you know? So there's the action 80s thing, which, as I say, is uh, particularly like from 84 to, you know, maybe, well, you could even go up to 94 or whatever, is such a, uh, a distinctive visual style. But the other style that I think is clashing, congealing with the 80s action paradigms is another movement that's very much time stamped to the 80s, but it's, like I said, almost never overlaps with action. And it's something called cinema de look. Uh, so interestingly, uh, well, as we recently, you know, we recently learned with black exploitation that was originally uh, meant to be a pejorative. And I guess cinema de look was written originally as a pejorative as well. Like, oh, it's just shallow crap. But some of the filmmakers really exemplified that style or like Jean-Jacques Benex, uh, his, his film Diva from 1981 was kind of like, like the first shot across the bow. 
Uh, he did The Moon in the Gutter in 83, and then particularly Betty Blue, which has that gauziness we're seeing so much. It, it's, it's funny because it's set, the first third is set in the desert, and it's like you can see the heat, and yet somehow it has the same cozy gauziness that this film has in Christmas time. Uh, obviously, Luc Besson's Subway, although I think his La Femme Nikita is the much more accomplished film, but Le Besson, you know, we must pass over him in silence. Um, uh, Leos Carax, uh, he did uh, Mava Sang, you know, aka Bad Blood, which inspired the wonderful opening to Noah Baumbach's Francis Ha. Um, Carax actually had a real reflowering lately with Holy Motors and Annette. He's he's uh, he's really come back in artistically. I was going to say, as a cinephile, like I didn't know who he was actually until Holy Motors came out. And then I went back. Well, I still haven't watched it, but at least I got familiar with him. So I really got to actually watch his older stuff. Well, you know, he, he was one of those guys that he sort of um, – he did this major film that went way over budget with his um, – I think it was his then-girlfriend. It was Julia Binoche or maybe fiancé. And uh, something about the bridge. I cannot think of the name of it. But it was this big disaster. It was big folly. And he basically didn't really do much of anything for a long time. Uh, now, he may have done a film between like 1990 and Holy Motors in uh, uh, 2012. But it wasn't – my point is I wouldn't blame you for not knowing because he was gone. For, it was like Terrence Malick almost. You know? Right. It wasn't like he was still making movies, so to speak, where like he just wasn't making – you know, classics like he, it was just like apparently, like from what I what you're saying and from what I had looked up, like like with Terrence Malick, where he took that huge break to the point where you would think he was retired. Well, yeah, yeah, it was like JD Salinger, like almost. Um, I mean, you know, maybe not as long as JD Salinger, but uh, but then he also had like um people like Patrice LeCount, um, and uh, some Claude Chabrol from the from that decade. I know you recently picked up a box set of his some of his '80s work. Yeah. So, so again, all that, I kind of lump it together in the cinema du look. And I think 3615 or, you know, uh, Code Santa, if you will, has got that vibe in spades. You know, it's got the vivid primary colors, you know, the often like hot Santa Claus shades, uh, the rapid pacing, the highly stylized lighting, unabashed MTV inspiration. Well, one of the reasons, just not to interrupt, but just to no, no, add to what you're saying is... Um, one of the reasons I love the look of this movie, like you just said, the primary colors, the red, blues, and yellows in this movie. Yeah. I just wanted to show off that I know what the primary colors are. Uh, but <laughs> those well, color me impressed. <laughs> oh, yeah. <clears throat> no pun intended. No. Mm -hmm. uh, but no, but those colors in various scenes. I mean, the scene of the car in the garage where it's yes. bathed in blue, but then the headlights are unnaturally yellow. You know what I mean? Like, you only get that kind of yellow if you have a dirty car, but in this case, it's actually more for, like, you know, just the look of it. It's so gorgeous as it peers through, like, the hazy, wintry night. And it really reminds me of when I was a child. Um, one of the things that used to be a funny not fight, but like argument in my house when I was growing up because of how much I loved Christmas was anytime my mom would suggest that maybe we would switch to just white lights on the tree. Cause we used to have not just color lights, but the big bulbs, you know, the, oh, the, yeah, the fat ones and you know, they're so garish and so ridiculous. Um, and I even have, I still have a strand in one of my rooms over the window. Cause I just, yes. it doesn't matter like what, time of the year i don't like the looks of them and you know my mom would just try to tease me and she'd be like you know maybe this year we'll go to just uh, to these white lights and and i remember like putting up a fight you know uh for the longest time like every year be like no we need these fat 
color lights, you know, like this is, and she was like, cause she was trying to balance the fact that, you know, like it's, it's her house and <laughs> she can decorate. Is it though? Is it really you know, well, her house? Right. I mean, that's what I was saying. No, I'm kidding. Um, but no, but you know, I, I get it now as an adult where she'd be like, okay, but like kid, we were doing this because this is what we did in the eighties, but it's like 1999 now. And, you know, and of course I don't care about any of that because I just love the look. So this movie reminded me, it's particularly the color palette, but also that gauzy haziness of where colors are so bright that they're almost like overpowering the specific, uh, I guess I want to say point on the screen that they're in. Yeah. And yeah, yeah. They're so like good. brighter than the actual subject matter. Almost. Yes. Yes. Where you can almost trace where they are. And if you were to actually... Uh, shall we say, turn the camera off and be there, you would be tracing much bigger than the bulb itself because the light was bleeding out, so to speak. And so, oh, totally. Uh, it just reminds me of my my Christmas as I was growing up. So, I honestly it gives me a lot of that too. Um, and, and what you said about that, the backlighting on uh, say Santa, if you will, in the snow in front of their car is so perfect. It's it manages to find that like majestic little spot on the venn diagram between like christmasy and you know diabolical <laughs> you know it's like it's like seeing chris kringle merged with jack torrance almost yeah yeah and and it, yeah and but there's those colors everywhere i mean like the scenes in the quote second basement of the store like where um they're they're shipping this stuff out it's it's like beige in this like chilly uh blue luminosity um it feels much closer to like something from tony scott or terry gilliam's brazil or tony like- scott i really i'm with you like there, it was so awash in blues uh right and i'll say this word again but in a good way like unnaturally so that i love that they picked a lane and they they stuck they you know stayed in it the whole time oh totally i mean if you had to name a um british director that was probably the most closely associated with cinema to look. It was probably Tony Scott. Cause he was always accused of the same things like, Oh, it's shallow and it's MTV crap and it's just fast food. But yeah, I mean like, you know, even like the, like it almost even reminded me it, again, maybe just cause I had action movies on the brain, but it reminded me like the baggage carousel back room in Die Hard Two, where one of the shootouts takes place. It's, it's much more like that than your standard Christmas flick, even a standard horror Christmas flick, which is, was starting to become, not a standard, but a sub-sub-genre by that point. Yeah. I don't know. There's just so many interesting things. Like, even the set design. Like, there's that the super reality, like you said, of the castle. But even, like, the color choices. Like, that aquamarine carjack. When he's, it's like, who has a perfect aquamarine I mean, I would love to have one, but... It's, and by the way, the Cavalier way Thomas lets that carjack down was pretty worrisome to me. I was actually expecting that to be like the final kill at the end. Like, <laughs> I came back. Yeah, yeah. But I mean, the same thing with, like you said, you know, there's these impeccably designed crane shots and cans at angles. And like you said, very fairly unrealistic sets. Like if you watch it, um, Jean-Jacques Benex's uh, The Moon in the Gutter, it's very clearly not intended to look like a real place. It's like right. a whole uh, couple stretches of road with houses and shanties. And it's such a set. It's beautiful. Honestly, this is uh, the use of the mansion in this movie, and I don't know for sure, but to me, at the very least, it's evocative in the same way as something like The Shining's Overlook Hotel. Yeah. Not so much where it's like, oh, it's a character or something like that in the movie, but I fully believe that 
you know, there were shots in The Shining that famously Kubrick set up that completely contradict each other. Oh, absolutely. You know, like there's a window in, in this office, even though later on we see when we go around the corner, but that's impossible because of, you know, now in that movie, it's done for a literal, like a horror effect. And even though this is a horror movie, I think in this movie it's done for fantastical effect. The idea being that it's, it's Tomas's imagination run amok, uh, which doesn't mean that the movie itself shouldn't be taken at face value because it should. Definitely. But I believe they, they did not limit themselves to what was feasible within the actual set that they had. And, you know, they let anything that they needed for the shot, even if it didn't make sense uh, architecturally, is, is what was uh, is what they would do. And, and it absolutely pays off. Oh, absolutely. I mean, even the scene where I mean, again, you have the scene where Pillow, his friend bikes up and he's like, run. It's like, oh, there's, you know, oh, what was his name? What was the name of the guy, the uh, psychic in The Shining who- uh, Oh, I almost said Scatman Brothers, but uh, Dick Halloran. Halloran, thank you. Yeah, it's like when he came up, I'm like, oh, watch out for the axe. I mean, even the way that he's being chased through yeah. these very wintry forests, it's almost I like the labyrinth. I think there is a little bit of Shining influence. I mean, oh, yeah. not like direct homage or anything like that, but it's it's almost too similar in, in a good way, mm-hmm. where this is like a children's version of something like like that, which is the person you trust the most as a child. You know, in The Shining, it was the father, and in right, this case, right. uh, for someone who doesn't have a father, which I actually think psychologically, there's something interesting there with Tomas, absolutely, because uh, his has passed away. But it's Santa Claus. It's you know the premier male authority figure, not because his grandpa isn't, but because unfortunately his grandpa has passed the prime of being, uh, shall we say, a stern. You know, he's the caretaker in that dynamic, which is actually mm-hmm. one of the sweetest parts throughout the entire movie. It's Tomas who is essentially keeping the grandpa alive. And what I liked is both in, you know, unrealistic ways, it, which I don't mean as a pejorative, but just outlandish, like, I'm going to save you, grandpa. But also in, you know, heartfelt, like like him looking for the insulin. You know, like I love that it was this mix of both kind of domestic but also you know terrorizing ways of, of, of problems that Tomas's face with keeping his grandpa alive or poppy poppy yes but uh, you're absolutely right i mean i love that scene where he's looking for the insulin at the caretaker's place and like i kept thinking that all the um packages of pharmaceutical goods almost resembled the colors of the um the famous secret you know his secret toy room at times i was like oh it's almost yeah. all right you know i mean again i think it probably has more to do with just the director's uh consistent sensibility consistency of production design or something but yeah right but yeah. right although i i do remember seeing an interview with him where he was saying well you know we really tried to shoot as much of this as, as we could at his eye level you know so it's maybe not quite like et and but. that really does come across in a way that is actually almost unnoticeable which i don't mean you can't spot it yes but i mean like i just watched last night um puppet master Oh yeah, uh, you know the, mm-hmm. the first never one, and I I've never seen it before, but um, you know sat down to watch it, and that movie really the first one. I don't know about the sequels, but the first movie really milks the first person perspective and the opening scene it was cute and then as the movie went on i realized they only kept doing it because they really couldn't show the puppets too frequently or else (laughs) you know you would see the seams uh kind of split right so it got a little obnoxious whereas here it is like i was saying shot from a child's perspective but it is not over and over and over limited 
to a child's height, if that makes sense. Like sometimes it is, right? But it's it's really more from the frame of mind of a child than a hokey like, oh man, we're always gonna aim at uh, the Santa Claus from the floor up, you know, or something like that. So, and I really appreciated the way they did it. No, I agree. And and I mean, the thing, the difference between this and something like, say, Puppet Master is that the guy who plays the Santa Claus, the the Satanta, if you will, in this, he's so good. He he genuinely looks like he's really looking to have a good time, but he's genuinely satanic too. So you don't see the shark at first. You see the legs, right? I mean, I mean, the kid doesn't see the shark at first. So it's it, when you finally see him running down that corridor towards him, where he's finally revealed, it's like, Oof, this is as bad as we thought, maybe worse. <laughs> so it, it, it does pay off, you know, so it's not just uh, a way of hiding the uh, strings, as you say. You know, it's funny, too, that you say that, because one of the movies that did remind me the most of was something like Jaws, mm-hmm. which is that, like Spielberg, I think this director totally understands how to make something terrifying without going into a... I don't know, a horror territory that exists outside of children, you know? Totally. Like, a child, and many children did, and got traumatized, <laughs> watched Jaws, you know, because they they couldn't look away, because it really does appeal both to children and adults, but it, it didn't have, I don't know, I guess an air of condescending to a child's point of view of being afraid of these things. And I, I thought, same thing in Dial Code Santa Claus, where there were many times when it took Tomas's both peaks and valleys uh, seriously. So the elation of seeing like Santa Claus met with also the horrified look of Santa Claus is not who I thought he was, was, was right. accepted at equal value instead of being uh, condescended to and like, oh man, children, they really need to grow up, don't they? Well, right. Yeah. It's, it, I don't remember who said it, but um, I read this quote last year and it was like, basically, because nothing makes sense to a child for the first few years, everything makes sense. So everything's weird. So everything's normal because that's just the way of things. Yeah. And I think you're right. I, I think we got that vibe like Mansoor and, and Spielberg, too. They definitely don't condescend. Um, they definitely. And it's not just, oh, we have the heart of a child. It's like they they really remember I think the fears and the um, the mixtures of emotions, you know, I mean, you know, Spielberg very famously, his uh, father left when he was very young, you know, I mean, it's just you can kind of see that. Well, and also, and this isn't my A-list pick, so I'll bring it up right now, but um, but E.T. is a very good example of a child's film. I mean, it's a a children's film. It doesn't mean that adults don't like it or can't get anything, but it is very heartwarmingly pitched for children, which is so rare as far as that kind of caliber <laughs> and quality to say, you know what? Not I'm making a movie about children. I'm making a movie for children. Right. And yet, in a similar manner to this, that movie takes seriously the, the worst thing about being a child is not being an adult. Right. Because if you are an adult, you have. Uh, almost an unlimited amount of resources. Now, that's not always true, but just in in the mind of a child, and especially comparatively to a child, Mm -hmm. when you're a child, you don't have a lot of options. So, when they're biking away from the agents, you know, in AT or something like that, reminds me of moments in this movie when Tomas is doing anything he can to just literally, you know, stay alive. Oh, that's very true. I'm I'm glad you mentioned E.T. because E.T. is such a great example of that where they finally have to like 
come clean and tell their mom. They're like, okay, E.T.'s dying. We have to show him. And so the, I think for a moment, they're like, okay, we're going to be good. We told the adults this will all be taken care of. And almost immediately, the government agents come in, which terrified the shit out of me as a kid. And, yeah. I, and honestly, even now, if I was to watch it, I think I would probably feel the same. It, this feeling of powerlessness, the idea that, oh, the adults are not in charge either. There's another group on top of them that are basically without check. And I, and I, I, you know, I, that, that's a terrifying loss of innocence that E.T. really brings across. I will say, just getting personal for a second, sure. it's like I grew up uh, in my childhood going in and out of hospitals and whatnot. And I don't say that as a woe is me, but just for context. Yeah, of course. And I think, honestly, one of the most terrifying images of my childhood from a movie is from E.T., but it's specifically the mise-en-scene inside those tents. Yes. When... Elliot and um, E.T. are being treated. And, and a part of it was my own, you know, uh, hospital aversion because of how much I hated being there or whatever. Sure. But it was also this weird acknowledgement that the adult world is so much bigger than I realize that things that are being sold as good for me are never actually going to be okay with me. You know, it doesn't mean I'll never go to a hospital, but it's completely out of my control. And it, you know, that's it, interesting. And in that movie, it is slightly more of of a thriller aspect because technically they're not always looking out for his best interests. Sure. Um, but it's the idea that you have no power in that room, and yet that room is also terrifying, even without that. Well, and, and but I mean, the fact that it is a thriller setting that makes the metaphor so potent. I mean, same thing here. I mean, most fortunately, most children don't don't learn that Santa Claus isn't real by having in an, this way. <laughs> right. Yeah. A maniac running after them. I mean, that's a that's a double trauma right there. Um, I, I, I do want to say just a really quick little bit about the sound design. Uh, obviously, the, I mentioned the montages and the pairing of pop songs, but the. For instance, the scene uh, we were talking about earlier where uh, they're in the car in the garage, the the chilling way the filmmakers sort of oralize only the sledgehammer blows while we see Thomas and Grandpa in silence screaming through the window. That was incredibly effective. Uh, and, and there's other times, too, where the score and the sound effects are are trading back and forth, which, as you know, as I've said many times in many episodes, I, I always love that. But like there's like use of gated snare hits to accompany certain actions, like when uh, Satanta headbutts the windshield, there's a drum gated drum sound or Thomas even just flipping on the lights in his mother's office when he's trying to find the phone, uh, the, the gunshots at the end, the grandpa when he shoots uh, or even the synth. This, the keyboard synth imitating the choo-choo sounds as the train is, is approaching. It was just so, so much care was taken into building this atmosphere of dread, but also wonder. And uh, it, like you say, there aren't many movies like this that really do that. I, I would absolutely agree. I love the, uh, the Foley work in this movie because it is very unrealistic yes once again it's i I say that word a lot about this movie but it's it's true and and it's a good thing because it's not to say that it's not precise um you know i think there's a a pit that like first-time filmmakers can fall into when they're making a movie especially if they're trying to make something like a genre film where you don't have to abide by the laws of reality because it's already ridiculous you know whatever right where you were taught how to capture sound and how to mimic real life things. And then you weren't taught that 
rules are made to be broken, but for a reason. Right. And when you have something like this, where, you know, it's set from a child's point of view, like, that's a reason. And it doesn't mean you get carte blanche to do whatever you want, because you should still play things by ear <laughs> and mm. make sure that, uh, you know, it's right for the shot. But in general, it allows you to do things like, like what you said about the shot of them in the car. You know, the fact that we're in the car, but we're hearing the sound from the point of view of outside the car. It's sad, but there's a lot of culture out there right now of people who don't know anything about cinema. I'm just putting it out there. But that's, that's fair. Sure. Who make these dumb YouTube channels that want to pick apart movies because of what they perceive to be is the one universal way to make a movie. And it's stuff like that that would get picked apart because people don't realize that, you know, standards in movie making or shall we say, uh, you know, like the 180 rule of axis and whatnot, like... Mm -hmm. It's not that those things are not good. They are, especially if maybe you can't quite figure a shot out, then at least start with the basics or something like that. But they're not the stamp of approval that automatically make your film, quote unquote, competent. In fact, right. a lot of times, if you just follow them to a T, you made one of the most boring movies you can make because we've had a hundred years worth of those movies. and Exactly. At a certain point, you know, you have to do something new. And so that's why I always love when something like Galco Santa Claus. Can't remember what movie it is that I just watched recently. Was it Jeepers Creepers? Oh, yeah. I saw you did watch that recently. I have seen that a long time ago. There's a scene in Jeepers Creepers where I think it might be the opening shot where the car is off in the distance and the, the camera is on the road itself, like a desert road or something. I don't remember. Yes. And as the car is going, you hear the noise from inside the car, even though it's way far away. And when it dips underneath, because it's a hilly, you know, stretch, the sound goes out, even though there's no reason. I mean, A, there was no reason for you if we're just following the logic of diegetic sound and whatnot. And with the space between the camera and the car, there's no reason why we should have heard it in the first place, but we did. But then the movie breaks its own rules. And the moment the car goes out of sight because it dips down, you no longer hear. And then it dips back up to the top of the next hill. And and it keeps doing that. It's little things like that where I... I love, even in bad movies or something, where I'm just like, people are playing with the preconceived notions of, of what film is and, and it isn't. And anyway, that was a long, rambling way of saying that. I, I thought that the Foley work in this movie was weirdly fantastic, and I mean that in the literal world, like the sense of fantasy. Absolutely. Where there were moments when you don't hear anything. Like, you would you would normally be hearing some kind of ambient noise, but all that was, like, completely muted, literally, so you could only hear, like, the foot careening on top of the chessboard floor or something right. like that, you know? Well, yeah, because this, this is, um because we're seeing this through uh, kids' eyes, we're, we're seeing uh, something that's not physically accurate but it, it goes to a, it creates a greater truth that we understand because we're seeing it through them you know what you were saying about people who will pick apart stuff because they have this overly literal conservative way of looking at everything you know i'm reminded of that great film um ryan johnson did it i can't remember if it was his first but brick where yeah yeah it's a great film and it's stylized but it's it's basically shot for the most part relatively realistically the characters act relatively realistically, but the dialogue is incredibly stylized. It's this whole uh, cornucopia of slang and film noir stuff. It's totally unrealistic. And yet it gets to this 
I think it gets to a deeper meaning about how everything feels so goddamn dramatic when you're in school, <laughs> especially high school, where you're like, it's all life and death, you know? Yeah. And so when people criticize that, I'm like, ah, yeah, see, you're not, you're not getting the force from the trees on this one. Well, what I also think, too, with specific regards to something like Brick is that, and I think Ryan Johnson is fantastic, that something like Brick, like you said, even though it was his first film, I still think he was restrained on the visual side because I do think that there's always some kind of equation when you're making any film where yeah. if one element is going to be, you know, like overly stylized, like in this case, the dialogue, unless you're like Martin Scorsese or somebody who's been doing this forever knows exactly what they're doing right. I and mean, there's just, you know, whatever. You would need to not go all in, you know, so to speak, with every aspect of the film because It'll just look like that's all you had in mind. And it's something like in Dial Code Santa Claus. For the most part, even though we're talking about how fantastic the cinematography and the lighting is or whatever, the script is pretty straightforward. Oh, absolutely. You know, like obviously Tomas has flights of fancy with regards to his playtime and whatever. But other than that, they're not talking like anything out of the ordinary you know i mean they're talking like normal and she reacts normal you know and, and i know that sounds weird but like that part of the movie is kept at face value because otherwise we then have no anchor to the stylization that is present you know it, it doesn't stand out in any way and it has no purpose and in this case it does which is that the universe they inhabit is real as evident by the script itself however the perspective in this case, linked to the cinematography and the lighting, is tied to a child's point of view. Well, yeah, yeah. And, and what you said about perspective, too, that's so important. It's like when you're looking at an alien landscape, you, you, you search for little things that look familiar because – well, in some cases, it literally gives you a sense of proportion, like, oh, this is this big, this is this small or whatever. But if you don't have that, if you have just – alien everything, it blows itself out. It's like everything becomes so fantastical that there's no uh, appreciation for it at that point. So, yeah, I, I agree. I agree with me. <laughs> I concur with you concurring with me concurring with you. So, That's right. Yes. Well, really quickly, I was going to say on that note, should we maybe quickly take a break? And then we'll come back or? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Cause uh, I do have, I've got notes, girl. Oh yeah. The conversation is the no way over, but I do think we're about at the halfway point here. So let's, uh, let's go check on those cookies in the oven and we will mm. be right back after this short break.
do you smell that? Mm-hmm. That's right. The cookies are ready, my babies, because it's the Christmas season here at Project Exploitation. And uh, to celebrate in style, we're going to be talking about Dow Code Santa Claus uh, from 1989, uh, the original French Home Alone, which we'll talk about soon. Oh. Uh, I know, sacre bleu. Mon dieu. Invaders, <laughs> literally. <laughs> we here at Project Exploitation want to apologize to anybody who is currently or deceased lived in France at any point in time. Thank you. And and also probably anybody who's Belgian, too. Just to oh, right. And anyone who's Canadian. Mm-hmm. Yes. Also, if you've ever eaten French fries or French toast. Or a croissant. Oh, true. Yeah. You may be entitled or born a beret. to compensation. So, uh, yeah, let us know. Uh, yeah, today we're talking Dow Code Santa Claus. Um, so one thing I do want to talk about, and among many things, is the villain of the piece. Um, you know, I, I want to I wanna pick a bone with you, Dan. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I want to tell you why you're wrong about something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, That's cool. In your synopsis, you said that we should, for clarity's sake, refer to him as uh, Satanta? Yes. Yes. Now, listen, I love a good wordplay, okay? I'm not above any such shenanigans, but... Such, yeah, tomfoolery. Yeah. Uh, skylarking, yeah. But I think it's important, when talking about this film... To refer to the character as Santa Claus. You think? I do, because I believe that when you say Satanta, which I understand the impulse, right. we are approaching the movie from the point of view that the movie is not necessarily intending, which is that of dramatic irony. Mm. I think of this as a story in which a boy is literally fighting Santa Claus the entire time. Oh, I agree. I mean, it's not like we get... You know, it's not like we get the scene at the end, and we know it, it it would happen, because that's what would happen, where, after all this, the mom would explain, like, you know, that's not, you know, whatever. But never once does Tomas believe anything other than, this is Santa Claus. And I think that feeds into the nightmare of it all. And, and I, uh, so yeah, I think that in order for this movie to... Uh, really land thematically that we can never lose sight of the fact that this is not a bizarro santa mm-hmm. this is the only santa tomas has ever known well i agree but but i i think we've we've been given quite a bit of uh knowledge ahead of time I and mean, we've seen a lot of uh extraneous things that tomas hasn't seen in which we clearly he's a vagabond or a- how do you know Maybe he's there from the North Pole. What, he's just, he's undercover, Santa? Yeah, he's checking out. He's like, okay, what's uh, what's going on over here? North Pole Vice. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He owns a, uh, an alligator and uh, lives on a boat. I mean. Maybe doesn't wear socks. Well, you know, if the Crocs fit. <laughs> that was good. Thank you. Um, well, that's fair. Uh, I, I do agree, though. I mean, that's one of the tragic things about the film is... It's, it's, I, mean, I actually, I'm, I'm, I'm mostly teething, except for the fact that I bring it up because I remember the kid I used to read, like, I think Dean Koontz wrote that children's book, which is about, like, a, a bad Santa. But the whole book is predicated on the fact that even the children know this is an evil Santa. So it's, like, an uncomfortable and, a, you know, whatever. And that this isn't Santa, who, like, whether it's Santa's brother or something, like, it could be still fantastical or whatever. 
But what I find ultimately fascinating about this movie is that Tomas, because of his uh, predilection for play acting, never once stops believing in Santa. <laughs> and that is how you know it's from a child's perspective. True. Like, even in a normal movie that would like come out today, I feel like the moment the dog is killed, there would be a slight shift in tone in which mainly the same things happen as far as like action on screen. But the person playing Tomas would then kind of play it like, okay, I lost my innocence at that moment. Right. I'm now I'm now an adult and I now know the world to be an ugly play, you know, whatever. Right. Um, whereas for Tomas, it's really like a he fights to hold on to it, you know, the whole movie. True. Um, and I find that to be uh to be fascinating. Um, but getting really quickly back to the villain at large. Sure. On the one hand, uh, he's not my favorite part of this movie. Like, I, I mean, he's pretty good, but mostly in a casting way. Not necessarily because of his performance, which is in no way bad, but he is just perfect set dressing for this nightmare. I mean, we uh, talked about it off mic, but I'll bring it up now, which is the spray painting of his beard to be white. Yes. For the rest of the movie, his beard beard has an uncanny valley aspect to it Definitely. that is never not unsettling yeah you know and it's such a great choice not only to do it but to show that it's an in-universe thing you know it's not like the lights in the movie which are like i said unnatural and you know artificial in the way that they're being presented here were shown like oh the reason why his beard is going to look like that throughout the rest of the movie is because you know it's painted on and you know like we're seeing how the sausage gets made sure but it doesn't take away from the fact that this is um, a groped, you know, if Tomas is play acting in a childlike way, he is play acting in a grotesque way. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> well, there's a couple really interesting. Well, okay. Well, first off, I should say, I think when the actual home invasion begins, it's like the movie's opening genre, you know, the family Christmas movie, the heartwarming sort of ample entertainment part is invaded by the horror genre. In the same way. So we as an audience, even though we're typically older and understand this isn't the real Santa and everything, and we've been given clues, it really does it's a it, it does hit us on a metaphorical or allegorical level where we're it really underscores how Thomas's fairy tale innocence is being invaded upon. And the switch over to the invasion narrative is really jarring, but yet somehow it works because I think it fits the theme of the of well even the plot the character just simply being suddenly uh jarred by this this idea that oh santa's an ogre like his mom said to him over the phone like if you're not in bed he'll turn into an ogre it's like well it's very similar to the way that you know the french invaded indochina right i mean very true well i think it's a metaphor which tomas was certainly subconsciously reacting to when he is play acting and and he's never gotten over the the country's role in that oh okay so tomas plays the in intellectuals uh the uh, may of 68 intellectuals who are disgusted by the war but are complicit because of they grew up in relative wealth and privilege i see we no i see your point though uh, let's not even get started on Algeria. <laughs> oh, God, don't get me started. <laughs> oh, boy, we'll be here all night if I start talking about Algeria, you know. <laughs> but anyway, uh, one thing that's really striking before I start getting into the ironies and, and the idea of him as a sort of a diabolical playmate in a way, but the brutality of the villain is 
oddly refreshing. I mean, he slices Thomas's upper thigh, which, by the way, is the same place that uh, Thomas shoots uh, Satanta later. And Mansour, the director, keeps occasionally cutting the shots, showing the blood running down his leg. And of course, it's very red, just like Mansour does everything. It's very, very brightly colored. And in a way, just as a really quick aside, it reminded me a little of this film I just saw recently called Summer of 84. It's from uh, 2018. And it has it does have young kids as protagonists very much. It's very much told from their perspective. And it features a particularly unsparingly savage villain. And uh, and it's very much about like, now they're a little older. I think the characters in this are like 15. They're not quite old enough to drive yet, I remember. But it's very much this idea of, oh my God, this kind of unspeakable horror is so nearby. And it's kind of one of those things where they're investigating somebody and they're like, but they don't really believe he's going to actually turn out to be a monster. Uh, anyway, so I thought that was interesting. Um, but I, I will say, some of the ironies in here are really intriguing, but this one's a real doozy. So, because Thomas expresses doubts about Santa, right, at, at breakfast, Julie decides to hire a ton of new unvetted people, which makes her unintentionally, but just from a practical perspective, linearly responsible for Satanta being hired and then in turn fired, which gives him the animating grudge to attack the castle. I mean, it's it's just such a horrible confluence. It's, it's very beautifully written. Uh, and then there's the other irony is that unlike so many of the like uh, iconic uh, stalker killers, you know, inscrutable killers in horror cinema um, where, you know, the terror comes from their inscrutability. You know, it's like the, the seemingly like nonsensical, unstoppable nature of the violence and our inability to understand the, their motives, if they have any, you know, this one, the motivations turn out to be like mind-bogglingly basic, like really, really obvious and, and almost sweet in a sad way. It's like, well, you know, the initial purpose of the home invasion is probably revenge, it seems like. But then the audience starts to wonder, like, what else is going on in his mind? Like, specifically, why does he keep mysteriously allowing Thomas to get away several times? And I think what's happened is I was taking a microcosmic view which I think was intended at the beginning. You're trying, it's kind of a, it's it's a red herring. But once I pulled back to the macro view, it's just obvious. He thinks he's playing a game with his buddy and he's stalking him on slow <laughs> because he doesn't want the fun to end. And this kind of, it, it's sad because if the guy wasn't disturbed, he would actually be probably a great playmate for Thomas, who let's face it is, I mean, he's... <sighs> He's a creative kid. He's using his his considerable technological skills to create worlds to play in. I mean, he's not just like playing like potted video games. He's actually making his own world. You know, uh, he's not like sitting down saying, okay, entertain me. You know, he's got taking all these high-tech tools like the IBM, the speaker systems, the audio equipment, blah, 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 and make his own magic world. But as opposed to like somebody like Max and Rushmore, who like it always feels like is trying to make an outward appearance of maturity in order to kind of like evade and leapfrog childhood, Thomas, I think, really, truly actually revels in the pleasure of being a kid in this kind of like fairyland where he can kind of get whatever he wants and do whatever he wants. And he's not like decadent or corrupted by it. He's actually uh, he's actually being creative. But, but all this, it seems like is my point is, is it seems like all this is kind of a way to divert his attention from the fact that he's kind of essentially isolated from everybody his age. I mean, he's obviously brilliant and, and you know, uh, prodigious, but I'm guessing based on his location and his level of genius, he's probably homeschooled and he's 
probably a good self-starter. And I don't think he's probably given to the depressive moods yet, but he's probably starting to become cognizant of that solitude. And I think, again, it's like, it's like Max and Rushmore. He's a lonely kid with few people he can relate to. You know, I, I definitely understand personally, like I spent a good part of my childhood on my own and, and uh, obviously it kind of honed my um, creative instincts and my ability to entertain myself and everything. But there is a certain weird uh, sort of solitude to it growing up that way, growing up kind of by yourself a good part of the time. And I mean, like you said, his grandpa is obviously a great person, but you know, you need peers, you need people your own age. And, you know, and it's like, it's obvious his mom doesn't spend enough time with him. I mean, she's like going to wait for the Brinks truck to show up on Christmas Eve instead of spending the evening with her son and dad. It's like, what? Yeah. You know, well, and you know, like even the scene, which is so sweet, where Tomas is playing the uh, RPG game, the the table, oh yeah, RPG game with with the grandpa. It's just so funny because I love that it's admitted by the grandpa that they've been playing for a year and he's not yet leveled up, which means Tomas has a very rigid standards <laughs> for, you know, his, uh, he's a, he's a tough DM. That's for sure. He has a, he has a very, uh, strongly pronounced sense of honor <laughs> about these yes, things. And so unfortunately his grandpa who doesn't quite understand what's, you know, whatever, but is playing with him nonetheless, uh, he, you know, he's not like letting him slide. <laughs> right. I mean, it's like, you know, so if you compare grandpa to say, you know, say Tanta in another life, like I said, you know, he could almost be an ideal playmate who does seem to be enacting most of these games alone. I mean, not counting his, his faithful dog. Now, obviously, he's a homicidal maniac, so that's not going to happen. But I mean, it, it just it's funny. Like you see like how he seems puzzled, like that Thomas is scared after he slaughters his dog. He's like, oh. And then, like, you know, the whole thing where he, th that look of pure joy in his face where he sends the toy train back to him. Yes. It's like he's, it's sad because he doesn't understand, obviously, right from wrong and, and killing and such. But on another level, his intentions are startlingly pure. <laughs> you know what I mean? They are. But what I love about most of those moments is that they could be interpreted either way. Like, I'm pretty much with you as far as my interpretation of the killer himself, you know, being not connected, so to speak, right. with reality. However, on face value, you can make a case that, like, he's so deranged, right? And he's so homicidal that, like, when he sends the train back, it's because he knows there's a grenade on there. Now, we don't get, like, explicit confirmation because it's not like we see those shot reverse shot right. of him acknowledging the grenade but he does kind of move it a little bit so i love how like the movie really does work on two different levels simultaneously where it's like that scene is so tense because a it's just well done but like you know you you start to wonder like what if he is just a sadistic person <laughs> you know what i mean and, and this is like he knows the everything that's happening to the point where you know he's worse than we think or, or you know like what you're saying like he's so disconnected from reality that he doesn't actually understand that this is not a game, uh, which is something that Tomas does understand, but he's not an adult, so he can't end the game. Well, yeah, true. And, you know, I mean, you and I, we've seen our share of stalker films where it's like, you must play the game. Ha ha ha. I see you, blah, blah, and all that bullshit. And I mean, there there is like kind of a tradition, um, especially in genre film and television of like the antagonist who's like, apparently guileless <laughs> to like how serious his actions 
are, but that pops up a lot. And, and like, I remember there's a prominent example I always think of in the original Star Trek series, uh, season one of the original series. It's called the Squire of Gothos, where there's this guy who's essentially this all almost omnipotent alien, but he's just a kid. They kind of like the parents left him on his planet alone for a while. And so he's like trying to have fun with Kirk. You know, he doesn't really get the gravity of it. And like, I remember like, there's even a couple episodes of that and like sort of thing in the uh, Outer Limits. There's even an episode from the Outer Limits, I believe was actually called Fun and Games, where they forced people to kind of go on this sort of thing. I, not quite a Hunger Games thing, but something like that. But that said, I mean, I do think, I do think this guy, it, I don't know if he really does know right from wrong. Like you pointed out the spray scene, that extended shot. Uh, he just seems to become increasingly hysterical and honestly i wondered and maybe you feel this way too and maybe i'm reading too much into it but i wondered if it was something of uh an homage or a nod to uh christmas evil in 1980 that beautiful shot where he's sitting there at the mirror and he's like it's me and it's it's like basically his his finest moment as an actor in the film i would say i well i definitely noticed it because here's what i noticed i don't think anything similarity wise is intentional between the two movies. Mm -hmm. But one thing I would hold against this movie is that I do think while the villain works on a scene by scene basis, mm -hmm. it is very kind of rough in the sense that it seems very psychologically low rent when it comes to how he's developed. Like they seem to like yes. coast on the fact that because they don't really say anything about him and we can just project whatever we want, which is true to a degree because this, the dressing of it is done so well. But with a movie like Christmas Evil in existence, uh, this really does feel like a bargain basement archetype, not the movie itself. <laughs> um, because I do think they are trying to hit home that idea that he's essentially just a child who wants to believe in Christmas again and be that age. And in, in something like Christmas Evil... Um, that has enough time to be fleshed out. Right, right. Oh, yeah. It's a very psychologically complex film yeah, compared to this. Yeah. And in something like this, because the movie is really about Tomas, it's almost maybe would have been, I think, slight, like 1% scarier if they didn't even try to imply that. You know, right. not to say that they would like have him turn to the camera and be like, I'm certified crazy or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But if they had truly played it, which like they mostly do, but in a way where like, you know, seeing him before his invasion, it does slightly weaken it overall. I think, um, like when he slaps the kid, you know, like like I love that moment. Like, so the first time I watched the movie, I was like, oh, this is a, you know, totally. But once he gets to Tomas's castle, there's not a lot of room to expand on it, so. It really becomes more of a question of like, well, how did he even get this far? You right. Know, like, like, how is he able to feed himself, if you will? Yeah. And so, therefore, it's kind of like maybe it would have been creepier had we glimpsed him for a second on the job. And then, okay, now he's just at the house. And I get that the intricacy, because I like what you were pointing out about the irony of the mother kind of accidentally leading. Mm. So, it's like, none of this is like bad 
but maybe it would have been more in service of the character if actually some of that was stripped away. Well, I mean, in a way, like you said, I mean, there are scenes, most of this is told from Thomas's point of view, but it's this, obviously, there's several scenes that aren't where we're seeing an omniscient narrator. And I think they're the weakest scenes, just comparatively speaking, not to say that like, oh, they're bad or whatever. Uh, you're right. I, one, one area, though, I do disagree is the scene right the pre-invasion rocking chair scene. He's got tears in his eyes and he's looking up and he's waiting till midnight because, and this is what makes me think he's legit is that he's- I do like that scene. I will take that back. That's a great one. It's a great scene. That slow pull in. And it's like, I think this is where I kind of go, oh, he's not just playing the scary role to scare the kid. He really wants so badly to do everything right. Like, I don't think he planned on killing a, a dog, you know, or whatever. The other reason why I think he's full on in, despite his faults, he, you know, Satanta, he knuckles down into that role. He comes down the chimney, despite the very real dangers warned of in Gremlins. Everyone knows the story. He does. And he did it. And he pulls it off, too. That's, the, that's the, to me, the most real, unrealistic part of the whole movie. So I'm like, wait, how did he do that? <laughs> it's like, wait a minute. Nobody can do that, you know? I No, I agree. Even the guy from Christmas Evil couldn't pull it off. Well, he tried. God bless which him. Which is one of my favorite scenes in that whole movie. Oh, it's so sad. Where, God, I mean, I know we already talked about it, but just what a perfect movie as far as nailing the line between sympathy and horror, basically. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Yeah, and terror, like genuine terror about this person is not right, you know, and I wouldn't want to be around this person, you know, be for fear of what they would do. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, so I agree with your assessment of that scene, particular of him in the rocking chair. I actually think that's his strongest scene mm -hmm. without interacting with Tomas. And I think what actually makes that scene stronger and kind of maybe in my own eye that least supports what I'm saying is that. I think that scene still works even if you strip away the earlier stuff. Like I don't think I don't think we're told anything about him in the first ten minutes. Even if some of those moments, you know, are quietly, you know, unsettling or whatever. Like that scene almost does it. Yeah. All in one take. I love that scene. God, I I know we talked about it, but I'll just reiterate, I love the look of his beard. It is never not he never doesn't look like a killer santa claus yeah and almost unintentionally so because obviously his intention <laughs> is you know to do one thing right and of course he does the very thing that actually makes him look psychopathic and you know i watched the vinegar syndrome 4k disc on my oled 4k tv and it nice. his beard was honestly the most impressive part of the present. I mean, the whole disc was gorgeous, but every time his beard was reflecting little lights, because it is different texture than hair, it was one of the most fascinating things to like see in like full clarity. Oh, I so, kind of makes me want to watch it that way now. Yeah. And it's funny because when he's like, like I said, when he's charging across the room towards him, he looks like I'm pulling it off. I'm Santa. And it's like, no, your eyes are not, they're telling us something else, man. Yeah. You know, and it's, you, again, you feel sad for him. Yeah. Oh, uh, one thing I wanted to say is that we've been talking about how the movie obviously kind of takes place from a children's point of view. And, you know, the more I think about this, the more that's 100% true, but also not entirely true. And the reason that I'm saying that is because it is such a good idea script wise. Like, I'm, I'm in, not in awe, but I'm like, hmm. oh, that's good. When, it, when I think back on the script, to include the grandpa as a character. And here's why. Because 
we never have to leave Tomas completely alone, which means there's a a tenderness that really is present throughout the entire movie, no matter what situation he finds himself. He either has like a reason outside of just his own survival to survive, you know, a reason. Absolutely, to yeah. Not that a child would, but you know what I mean, like just a, a literal one. And he also, not to speak about the elderly, but his grandpa is not that far away from his own point of view, as far as there are parallels to be drawn between the youngest in this world and the oldest in this world. Right. And how they look at the world, how they interact with others, you know, naivety, whatever you want to call it, because it happens to us all. And so I love the idea that the movie's POV doesn't really have to change whatever the grandpa is in the scene. You know, it's like, it is the perfect, I guess I would say, scene partner yeah. <laughs> uh, for Tomas, because like I said earlier, it, you know, it's got that tenderness, but also it doesn't ever interrupt the POV in a way that like, had his mom been there, that's a different story mm-hmm. altogether. Totally. You know, that's a completely different movie, even if it was the exact same actions. But here, Thomas can still feel alone despite being with somebody and that's where I feel like this movie truly is aimed at children. Thomas is almost, I mean, there are times when he literally is separated, but there's almost always an adult chaperoning the activities, which I don't mean literally because the grandpa was kind of an invalid and whatnot. Yeah. But yeah. There, there is something comforting about his presence while you're watching the movie. Definitely. It's just a nifty screenwriting trick, I thought. It's a really good point. And, and you know, that kind of folds back into part of why I was so impressed with the way the script dispensed with the whole, oh, kid, what are you waking me up for? There's no Santa Claus out there. Grandpa immediately is like, oh, okay, we need to hide. Yep, let's do it. You know, like there's none of this bullshit about, well, I don't know. You know, it's like, no, we're, you know, it's it's like Clooney and Dusk Till Dawn. He's like, we're all dealing with vampires. I don't agree. I don't believe in them, but we can all fucking agree these are vampires, you know. So, well, and even in universe, it makes sense because the first scene we're introduced with Grandpa is him waking him up as a Vietnam War prisoner. So one thing I kind of love is the idea that, you know what, Grandpa accepts everything he says because whether he's, you know, just being a kid or not, you know, that's just what he does because that's, as his role as a grandpa, that's all he has to do is to unconditionally love him. So while I do think for the most part, when he wakes him up and says like, oh, you know, Santa Claus is here to kill us, he takes it seriously. I think he takes it seriously because of the fact that this has always been their relationship. This isn't some like, okay, this is a leap of faith I'm going to make. You know, it's always been, I want to see the world through your eyes. And, and which we, you know, comes back to that POV thing. That's a really good point. Oh, that's a interesting, the idea I've seen it through their eyes. Uh, so I wanted to talk a little about the uh, opening epigraph of the film, which is by Bruno Bettelheim. That's right. And uh, basically what I... I don't have the exact quote here, so I'm just kind of telling you what I interpreted it as, was basically those who at a young age are disabused of any hope that the real world will provide any kind of life, like, you know, like, will be protected by adults or whatever, like at a young age, like, you know, in E.T. or uh, to an extent, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. I mean, I love that, where it's like, oh, my God, the adults cannot protect us from the uh, Death Eaters because this is beyond their abilities. And it's this terrible feeling, that realization of even the people we thought were in power are not really in power, and it's a very chaotic world. But I got the feeling that the Brutal Bettelheim quote was like the, the people who are you know disabused, like I said, of any hope that there'll be a real world that'll provide like a happier kind of life or a safety. Those are the ones who hold on to magic t- 
tightest because w- whether it's an escape, relief, or solace, or is just the only lifeline to keep them going. And I wanted to talk a little about Bettelheim because I think Renee Mansour's quote from him has several meanings. And I have to tell you a tiny bit about Bettelheim to explain it. Um, he was a Freudian psychologist who focused his work specifically on emotionally scarred kids. That was his life's work, as well as a bit on autistic kids too, which was a very new idea at the time. Basically, his, his one of his things was the idea was that these kids weren't these issues they had weren't with them when they were born. It was they came from environmental stressors. And Bettelheim wrote extensively on the value of fairy tales in child development, fables. You know, he said he he said they provide a non-disturbing way to process trauma and outside stressors. And then when we're older, we continue to kind of fall back on those archetypes in a, in a healthy way. Like it's a healthy way to structure our brains when dealing with adversity. So, so this was this guy's basically his life work. And when he was alive, he was extremely well regarded. Like by the 70s, he was like actually a fixture on talk shows. And I found out he even appears in Zalig, which I had no idea. So I'll have to watch Zalig again for oh, that. Oh, really? The Woody Allen film? Yeah, I love that movie. That's what I think one of Woody's best. But Bellheim famously survived the Holocaust basically by the skin of his teeth, to be honest. He was imprisoned at Dachau and then Buchenwald which were both death camps, not POW camps. Jeez. I know, right? That's like, it's like, that's like certain death, right? Yeah. And, but through a, some stroke of bureaucratic luck, he was released. And so he immediately fled to the New York City. Uh, and so he was a very vigorous advocate for armed Jewish self-defense, but in a kind of weird way. And this is where his legacy gets weird. He had this thing, like he got to the point where he would like criticize Anne Frank's father for what he saw as like, I don't know, not taking like seriously enough the coming like exterminations or taking proper measures to secure his family or arming himself. Like, yeah, it's so weird how sometimes humans can't fathom something that's unfathomable. <laughs> right, exactly. But I mean, there it is. The answer is right there in the in the near sentence. It's like it's unfathomable, you know. But it's like he saw it as like almost like fey or like kind of bougie. So anyway, thing is, right after he died. Uh, which I think was like two years before this film came out, like literally the same year he died, his reputation started to suffer. He was accused of plagiarizing like really big sections of his most famous book, uh, The Uses of Enchantment, which is where the quote from the beginning comes from. They said he lied about his credentials and education. Like he had said he had gotten PhDs in psychology and philosophy and art history, that he studied music with like Arnold Schoenberg and uh, he knew Freud personally and it, I know, like, it, it, but I mean, it's, it, but it turns out he'd been basically working for a decade and a half in a timber industry during that time. So he, you know, now, he sounds like Tomas. He has a big imagination. He does. And he believes strongly in the value of fables as a coping mechanism. But it's now I don't totally blame Bettelheim for this because I don't know what it's like to run from the Holocaust. And they say that people who are running from the Holocaust, they would have vent shit out of whole cloth because they were scared. Well, right. At least there's a practical reason for fabrication. Right. Because it was like, because people who did not, were not deemed valuable would be sent right back. And that was death, right? So I get it. And I think maybe it might have snowballed and he just couldn't, you know, but anyway. 
But there's a more troublesome problem too, which is that for a long time, he had this theory, which was really widely accepted, fortunately not anymore, that autism was not like a disorder that one was born with, oh, but yeah. could often be traced back to a mother's like lack of showing affection, yeah, which yeah. is fucking bullshit. It's right, known right, as the refrigerator right. mother theory. It's really fucked up. And that's totally discredited now. But my point is that Bettelheim, here's a guy who advocated, who, who had these interesting ideas about fables and about maturing and using archetypes as a way to uh, cushion the impact of adulthood and maturity. And yet at the same time, he had this terrible fall from grace, which Rene Manzar would have certainly known about. It was very public. I mean, it was, like I said, right after he died, all this shit came out. Like if he had, if he had lived six more months, he would have been alive when all this came out. It just happened that way. <laughs> So I think Manzor's choice of that epigraph is meant to guide us partly through the sudden like tonal changes, obviously, in the film. Like like you said, the first scenes have that really family, ample entertainment, Yuletide sweep, and the kids are doing the snowball fight, and there's that uh harp ostinato score that just that repeated thing, and there's that cottony like gauze. In fact, there's even like a cottony gauze enveloping, like even the breakfast scene with the three of them at the beginning. Like there's there's some very like soft edges to that. Yeah. You know, there's some, I don't know, it's it's intriguing. It's weird when it goes from exterior to interior, because like exterior, you almost understand the visual choice, you know, because we're primed to could be like, okay, right. it's indicating, you know, the, the weather or just the kind of uh, perspiration that is kind of one of those things where you're like... You can't quite see, but you can or whatever. So when we go to something that's like a literal controlled climate and we're still in that gauzy, you know, whatever, it's, uh, I mean, I think it works, but it's a, it's a very risky choice visually to see, you know, if you can't nail the tone to accompany it. Well, very true. And it's, it's, it's almost like the, um, the castle, like you were saying, I mean, that's such a perfect kid's mise-en-scene. But I mean, the idea that's this ancient castle, and then there's that tremendous overhead shot at like 50 minutes in, and it echoes, obviously, the snow globe, Eiffel Tower at the beginning, but it exposes the enormity and like sequestration of the castle, which is like a compound. Um, I mean, Grandpa at one point says there's hundreds of rooms. I mean, it's it's beyond, it's a kid's imagination. Like no one, you know what I mean? It's, which right. I love that. And the, that line, and also even like, the secret room with the toys seems like that's physically impossible, you know, even though oh God, yeah, the you know that the castle looks big and whatnot. It's specifically, I was thinking of that room in particular when I think of this as like from a child's point of view, like that these things that every child wants, you know, it's just possible in this movie because it is from you know Tomas's point of view because but i I love that set. First of all, I love that the, we meet Tomas in it. So we meet him in a literal fantastical place, like outside of his own normal living space. Yeah. And time and time again, they retreat to it. And I find that that to be interesting, that it's not just like a, I guess, out of sight, out of mind locale. It becomes this like home away from home, both for Tomas, I think, during the regular season, but also during this horrific night, because I feel like every time they, they went in there, it, it felt like a video game in a good way, where like there's a safe room and like Resident Evil or something, where mm. when you're in the safe room, you're good. Like the zombies, which are normally like always going to fucking come at you no matter what you do and you never have enough ammo, whatever. But if you're in this one room, you're good, whatever. And that is a very childlike mentality that something like as 
liminal as a space uh, somehow has magical powers and and yet it does and in, in this movie oh well, yeah you're right i mean it is it's like the safe space and you know and it's like you said the resident evil video game i mean there's all those secret passages and i mean this movie's full of like trap doors and movable panels and walls that secretly open and sliding facades and you know yep. rope bridges and like maze like quarters i mean like his his mother's office that's it's it's insane who would have ever created that yeah i mean it's it, it's beyond it, it's so eccentric but it's so perfect because it's like you know what you were saying about when you watched um was it um it was Little Caesar. You said you watched Little Caesar. Oh, yeah, yeah. And you were talking about the oversized sets. Yeah. And yeah. and I was thinking also about, I was thinking of that in Brazil, or, or maybe the Hudsucker Proxy to an extent. It, it, but in this case, it makes the most sense because it's a kid's perspective. So everything looks outsized and humongous, you know? Yes. Well, and the other thing too, now that I bring it up, because I never really thought about it, but now I kind of like, oh, you know, mm-hmm. putting it together or whatever, but... Considering one or two of the alternate titles is Game Over and Deadly Games, and considering uh, Tomas's fascination with modern technology, even though we don't see him really play video games, mm-hmm. like I alluded to with the Resident Evil comparison, it is interesting that his time during this night is not spent on escaping. Like, I know he says he needs to escape, obviously, but it's more of a exploring the mansion type, I mean, from our perspective. Um, And it's very much tied to that kind of mentality of, like, get to the next room, that's what's most important. Because, in reality, there's a way to leave that house. (laughs) Yeah. Like, that's just not, that's impossible. Like, right? You know, that that there's just no way in a dire situation that that's so hard to do. But I can understand why from a child's perspective, like, that's totally consistent. Um, But before I do forget, I do want to say one thing I'm not a fan of. This is like the only time where I thought, I don't know, and maybe you can defend it and therefore I'll be like, oh, okay. This was the tonal shift issue, the one time you felt like, yeah. the tonal shift issue. So, I can kind of understand it, but I just don't think it landed for me when Tomas's friend shows up, you know, uh, at the front doors. Yeah, yeah. And then the uh, Satan Claus chases him. That whole sequence, I thought, fell flat for me. I mean, the terror of him showing up didn't, like, when he's in the doorway and whatnot. But when they're running away, they're playing, like, a rock song like it's a very jaunty ditty okay yeah that sucks i agree with that part i didn't like that either i liked the scene but not the music up until that moment i agree like i I, it's not like i was like well this is weird you know i'm like oh no but for some weird reason i felt like the score was very consistently calibrated because like yeah we got eye of the tiger during the 80s montage and we got a few other random thing even whatever but that i'm like oh wait hold on like this is still technically a child, so this isn't an adult, you know, that's being chased. And I'm like, even though he doesn't believe in Santa Claus, I don't think he would find this to be a, like, ooh, a thrill or something, you know, whatever. And so, like, I felt like that moment, I don't know, you know, the score, maybe something got lost in translation, if that's some kind of, if it's tied to some kind of national trend in media over in France. But that was one time where I'm like, even a bad movie in America, I don't think would like carelessly, which I don't mean like American movies, but I just meant like there, there may be something I'm missing because it's so, I thought, out of character. That was one time where I'm like, okay, it's not nailing that tone. But outside of that, I mean, maybe there was one other time that was similar to that where I'm like, I don't know if we need this or that. But that was the most egregious one where I was watching it and going like, 
the kid didn't die, so maybe that was the whole point. Like, it's not like it ended with him being brutally murdered or something <laughs> yeah. like that. So it is. It, it it does end up being more of a lark as far as the passage goes. But uh, yeah, d- that part didn't quite land for me. Uh, you know, I should watch that part again. I remember the music feeling uh, out of joint from everything else. Um, but I wonder, like, if the music was minor or major. Um, I mean, like, I feel like the visuals felt very frightening. Like, I was like, because, yeah. I mean, he's even wearing, like, that jacket and says, like, no on the back. It's like, you know, haute couture with, like, you know, but it's like an English word here, you know, or whatever. And, I mean, which, and he's, like, grasping for it. I mean, it's, I thought that all works really well, but I'd have to watch it again. I'd be curious about that, too, because, it, yeah, because it shouldn't be played for hijinks or whatever. It reminded me, even though it's not as big of a moment uh, in in this movie as it is in the movie I'm going to say, but it reminded me of Francis Ford's uh, Coppola's bastardization of The Outsiders, which is one of my all-time favorite movies because that's one of my all-time favorite books. I love it. And I grew up reading that book and watching that movie. So like, no matter how good or bad that movie is, it'll always be like one of my favorite things ever just because- I, I think it's great. It. Yeah. And I've always loved it, loved it, like specifically the theatrical version. And then in like 20, I don't know, 2005 or something like that, he came out with the complete novel version. Oh, yeah. Which was super cool to someone, you know, who's read the book a million times because apparently he had filmed a lot that never got actually made into the movie. And there was going to be... because. You know, the movie is a great adaptation because it doesn't follow the book. I mean, it does, but there's a lot of stuff that's left on the cutting room floor. Mm -hmm. And frankly, he made all the right choices. But the complete novel was going to add like 20 to 30 minutes of like everything else, which, you know, was going to be a cool curio, so to speak, to, to watch and whatnot. Right. And I can't stand it because the additional scenes are great. Like, I love seeing like a lot of the epilogue come to life, which was basically dropped. But he also changed the soundtrack throughout the entire movie, which, A, the soundtrack is iconic, like the theatrical. I learned who Van Morrison was because of the use of them, you know, and Gloria in that opening scene um, when I was that young. And, And I think that's still in there. So he doesn't go like crazy, but he amps up that to the point where, and spoilers for a very old book, a very old movie, but... When uh, Matt Dillon's character is about to commit suicide by cop, basically, mm-hmm. uh, when he's running down the street, in the original theatrical version, it's a score. You know, it's a film score. It's a very harrowing moment. The music that is accompanying it perfectly captures the emotions that are running high, especially as the other outsiders are shouting for them not to do it. Right. In the complete novel version, the exact same scene is scored to a rockin' Elvis tune. Oh. It is one of the dumbest things uh, I've ever seen. And that's like the climax of that movie. It's like, well, yeah, if you do that, it's like, okay, so it's ironic. But this isn't an ironic film. This is a movie with a lot of heart. It's, it's Right. I mean, if anything, it's overly earnest. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's I a mean, tragic thing. Like the, It literally felt like, like did a Soch edit this movie? But anyway. Honestly, I hear you. Yeah. So, no, I did not know that. I remember there was a complete novel version, but I never watched it. Well, and the worst part about it, and then I'll stop talking about <laughs> this, but when the complete novel version came out, which I think it came to DVD first, and then they did put it on Blu-ray, but it was still in the DVD era, like where Blu-ray hadn't taken off yet. The original theatrical version was never included. Like it was it was like George George Lucas mm. and I didn't know that when I got rid of my original, you know, DVD. Oh. Whatever. 
the era finally that we're in now is 4K. Uh, when I bought the 4K disc, it came with both versions. Thank God. So at least he finally, at least he finally got over that. But God, yeah. I'd love to watch that again. I haven't seen that in forever. Me too. I'd watch it in a day. But anyway. Let's do that sometime, man. I'm down. A uh, couple of things I wanted to say, um, just going back to the idea of fables and um, fairy tales. It's interesting, the street scene outside in the department store, it's so carnival-like. And I, I wonder, it, it has a very incandescent quality, like so many of the outside scenes. But it's like, you know, Julie's like fairies on roller skates and clowns and fire eaters and jugglers and acrobats. And I'm wondering, like, I wonder if this is like a unique thing to France's version of Christmas traditions. Like, so, okay, so this is only going to matter to people who live in this uh, immediate area that we're from. But in Aurora, every year they do uh, the Riverfront Playhouse, which is an institution. It's been, I think, around since 1978. Uh, anyway, they do a Christmas carol every year. And it's a musical version that was written by the founder. But it's interesting because it's got all these, it's heavily steeped in like Carney and Romani ornamentation. And you know what I mean? And I wondered like, you know, is this something that's like a big thing in in France? I don't, I don't know, you know? Uh, so No, I, I was going to say, unfortunately, I have nothing to add because I, I'm with you in that when I watched it, it was one of those things where I thought like, oh, is this something culturally specific that is uh, well above my own uh, experience or whatever? But, right. Uh, I feel like it's got to have to be at least to a degree because right. Christmas is so universal, which I don't mean in its presentation, but no, but I hear you that like when you make a movie like in your own native place and whatever, like you can't make a Christmas movie without signifiers. Mm -hmm. And so I feel like there's got to be a lot of cultural specificity in that scene, particularly because it happens outside of the house and it's more in a public square. So it's it's something more agreed upon as to what Christmas is and means. Right. Well, I should add that um, uh, Sean Dooley, who actually did the um, uh, opening for our uh, Licorice Quartet uh, intro. Oh, yeah. He actually, he's part of that thing. And he actually literally swallows and breathes fire on stage. It's incredible. Uh, so wow. if you're ever uh, interested, every year they do it. So anyway, uh, but I just wanted to say that. Oh, and he also has a great podcast called Old Guys Who Love Things, which I enjoy immensely. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think we've talked about it. But um, so going back again to some of the fable -y stuff. I, okay, this is, this is kind of weird. Like, obviously, like you said, the castle and everything is is so beautiful and gauzy that, you know, the violation of, of Satanta's makes it more frightening. But, I mean, we get all these, like, gadgets. It's like Kiwi's Big Adventure. You know, there's, like, this um, tin rooster that kind of pops out on this extendo appendage, waking him up, you know? And he's got this impregnable <laughs> pillow fort uh, barricade, which I... I I mean, I know you're a fan of Community. I, I thought it. I thought of that episode where Pierce, you know, debuts his design drawings for the Pillow Man prototype. And I bet, you know, very seriously, he intones. He's like, I just I just hope we will never have to use it. <laughs> you know? But I kept thinking as I was watching this, how many times has Thomas done this? Like to get all this in place with the perfect sound effects and pyrotechnics, it's like everything's in place. And I know this is like the ultimate in a comparison, but for some reason, I was strangely reminded of the Duke of Burgundy, <laughs> which it's like, you know, I know, again, I know it's in a but it's like the idea of this comforting ritual every day, like this morning mantra that you do, you perform this thing or like this fable you tell yourself, if you will. I don't know. I found that fascinating. And, and I also, I think in a way, think about kids that's interesting is there's such great observers and pantomimes 
so that they can create these like little digest versions of the adult world in their games. But by doing so, they inadvertently like parody <laughs> the adults and make them look ludicrous in a way they would have never noticed before. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah there's, a, there's a great quote from Patty Smith where she says, I was looking to have an expensive oil painting made, but instead I got a mirror. Uh, now, Greta, she was talking about um, how she wanted the production on her first album to sound, but I always think that's sort of, to a greater or lesser extent, what it must be like to have kids, because kids try to act like adults, and so they imitate the adults' affectations, and it so one kind of realizes how grotesque it is when you see a little kid performing your affectations or whatever. So I feel like that's kind of what Tomas is doing, is he's encapsulating that entire uh, decade of action movies and in, in the process even though he's super earnest, and I'm, and I think the actor who played him at that age was super earnest. It's it's kind of this funny satirized version. I don't know. I just I just find it amusing. I guess I don't have a big point other than I just yeah. I just think it's absolutely wonderful, and I, I love that idea. No, I'm, I completely agree. Um, I actually think that might be a good time to uh, maybe bring it on home. Well, into final speaking ring. of home, oh. we haven't talked about. Oh. you know. Mm, all that. <clears throat> uh oh. Yeah, I know. Okay. Uh, okay. What do you got for us? Well, I just I feel like we should, you know, discuss as I say, the thousand pound, you know, Kevin McAllister in the room, which is Home Alone. Oh, that home. Yeah. Okay. Uh, for a moment, I thought you meant the set, and I'm like, I feel like we talked oh, about the. No, set. I love I love <laughs> the set, dude. I would live there actually if I could. But yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yes, we should talk about that. Uh, uh, this is famously, you know, this was '89. Home Alone was what, 90? 90. 90. Literally the next year. Yeah, I mean, it was, which does probably lend some credibility to the fact that it was probably already in development by the time true something like this came out. But, you know, true, true. it is a weirdly specific idea mm. tied to Christmas. And the fact that I don't think John Hughes is that good of a writer anyway probably biases my own. How dare you? I know. No, that's okay. I, I know we we feel differently. That's good. It's all good. We, we do. But, we do. But that said, this is a little weird. It is. I mean, obviously, the violence in this is a lot weightier, and not just because of the violence, but the themes it's bringing into the mix. I mean, like, I like Home Alone a lot for what it is. It is a superbly crafted movie. Uh, it tells a its story with a very deft uh, touch. But it doesn't have any of the ambitions beyond that, really. I think this is trying to engage us, like, you know, Code Santa's trying to engage us on s multiple levels. I mean, it's there's questions about even stuff like war toys. I mean, that never comes up in Home Alone. Uh, yeah. You know, and, and that's, I, I mean, that's another one of the film's ironies. I mean, just to, to mention a third irony is we're seeing him making his toys lethal to protect himself. It's like um, in the book of Joel, it's like... Uh, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. You know, it's kind of interesting that, again, those are things I would never really bring up when I watch Home Alone. I would be like, oh, it was great, but it's all kind of on the surface, I feel like. Well, and, you know, one chief difference between the two, which I think kind of supports my ideal about John Hughes as a writer, <laughs> but is that... You know, Kevin McAllister is a sadistic child. Nothing about Tomas is sadistic. True. He doesn't want to be in this situation. And I'm not saying Kevin necessarily does, but he certainly relishes that he's in it once the ball has started rolling. And everything he does to the criminals, when he technically could 
call 911. You know, like, absolutely. We're not, we're painting the picture of a child in danger, but almost incidental danger. Yeah. Like, if he would just stay out of the way, they have a different purpose. They don't care about him and, you know, whatever. Not to mention right. his electricity works. You know, he can call the cops if he needs to, whatever. Right. All that is never once, like, tried. It's not a horror movie. That's the big thing. These things are not taken away from him. And yet, at every turn, he goes for the biggest hurt when it comes to yeah. uh, stopping them, which is why it's a comedy instead of necessarily, you know, whatever. So, it is a different genre. And I'll say this about John Hughes, mm-hmm. even though I'm not a big fan. He's usually very good at sentiment, obviously. Like, that's his bread and butter. And that's why I don't find Home Alone very sentimental. Uh, even though I know it tries, and there are scenes I can point at where it's like, okay, that's where he's going for it, whatever. Yeah, particularly at the end and all. Yeah. But, you know, like, I, I find Dial Code Santa Claus to be a much more sentimental film. You know, it's a it's a much more rich oh, yeah. uh, version of that kind of innocence being tested. And, you know, I even hesitate, now that we're almost done with this episode, I even hesitate to say Innocence Lost. Mm. Because I like you know just now when I said innocent tested, I I feel like that's what happens to Tomas. Which it's not so much that innocence is not lost, but like I said earlier about him never once not believing in Santa Claus, no matter right. what is happening, is that I think that's him hanging on to his purity and hanging on to his innocence in a way that defies the usual trope of like, yep, you got to grow up now, kid. Right, right. No, I agree. I mean, there is something super heartbreaking about Thomas's, you know, quote, confession in the last seconds where he says he's to blame. Yeah. It's as if like all the violence he's endured is like some kind of like Aesopian just desserts, you know, like, oh, be careful what you wish for, ha-ho. And it's it's just the kind of thing I think that a kid who spends a ton of time alone, that would occur to him, he would internalize the tragedy and think it's something he's brought on himself instead of thinking, oh, wait a minute, Santa's not real, and this ain't Santa. You know what I mean? Right. It's very much rooted in naivety. Definitely. I mean, it's more like, I mean, obviously, like I said before, it's a double whammy. I mean, he's getting he's getting gut kicked by, you know, seeing an evil guy stalking him, and it's also apparently Santa. You know, it's it's almost, it reminded me, I don't know why I thought of this, but it reminded me that Lovecraftian concept where like, yes, there's an afterlife. When you die, you will go somewhere, but it's a place of eternal torture within the eater of souls, you know, Yag, uh, Sothoth, or um, what have you. You know, it's, it's just, there's something where you're like, oh, that's even worse, you know? And I think that is kind of how this movie shows the moment when, because he is already questioning it, you know, earlier. And I think he's going by it honestly. He's not being fashionably cynical. I think it's a very honest kind of solipsism where he's like, well, what about this? And and then his grandpa will say this. He's like, hmm, all right. But well, what about, you know, and he brings up, you know, uh, what does he talk about? Oh, uh, Versingatorix, you know, who I had to look up, by the way. I had forgotten him completely. He was a Gallic chieftain who united all the French tribes against Caesar, obviously unsuccessfully. But oh. but yeah, I mean, it's just like, he's like, well, but they haven't found his skill, you know, or whatever. I just, I always found that interesting and that kind of feeling of desolation is visually so perfectly done in that shot where he's out on the ledge and he's like walking a lot and he's like, it's the snows coming down and the, and he's like, the guys chased him out there. He's got the walkie talkie and he's like wedged himself into the chimney and it's obviously freezing. And he's talking to his grandpa and he's like, it's very touching. He's like, even at this, like, you know, total 11th hour 
moment. He's like, don't worry, Grandpa, I have the situation under control. And it, it's just this moment of just desolation that I, I thought was a perfect visual metaphor. You know, for some reason, it almost reminded me of, and I know you're not a fan of Star Wars, but it reminded me a little of this part at the very end of The Empire Strikes Back, where- <laughs> I'm a fan of that one. Fair Well, so so you probably, this is like one of the darkest moments in the entire series where this series of like forlorn shots of Luke, he's just, he's down one hand, okay? And he's using his other to hang on some like, like Cloud City antenna array or something. And there's no rescue. And he's literally just this drop that goes for probably, you know, however many miles. And I'm like, wow, that's, that's a pretty strong, you know, visual metaphor for desolation and um, being uh, disabused of, of something. You know, in the case of Luke, it's, oh, my father is my enemy. In this case, it's like, holy shit. My Santa is my enemy. My Santa is my, I mean, really? Yeah, literally. And also, nobody's probably coming to rescue us in time, yeah. you know, which is a pretty scary fucking thing. Oh, I did want to say one thing about Home Alone, though, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, I noticed that the coup de grace, if you will, in both Home Alone and in Code Santa is it's not done by the kid. It's not done by, you know, McAllister. Yeah, there's a protection of the child in that aspect. And in both cases, it's an older man, like a grandfather. Uh, in the case of, obviously, Grandpa, he shoots him. But in Home Alone, it's um, old man Marley with his, like, snow shovel. Yeah. The guy, uh, you know, yeah. I mean, he doesn't kill them. Oh, I forgot his name was Marley. I know. Isn't that beautiful? I love that. God, no, it's not. God damn it, Johnny. No, it's it's too obvious. No, uh, but I mean, he hits him with a snow He doesn't kill him like, you know, the Grandpa does, but... That's because he doesn't love him as much as the grandpa loves Tomas. Well, how could he? They're not even related. Well, true, but he's not even willing to kill the guy. I know. Like, you're not going to kill for Christ? So, anyway. Yeah, I I think in the end, uh, I did find that quote, by the way, from Elaine Lalonde, who said that, looking back, I think my father was mourning the fact that his son was becoming an adolescent, and that's what was behind this movie. So, that's kind of interesting. He said that as an adult. Yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, Well. Yes. What say you? Should we go into final rating this time or another fake out um i had one thing i wanted to say i wanted to give a shout out to okay. the doggy another fake out well oh yes jr is pretty great um, he's great the dog was played by a doggy named uh Canalielo. but i just want to say it's not often you see a dog that not only knows how to play dead which he does well but also thinks to add that that thespian touch of letting his tongue flop around outside. I mean, excellent dog choices. Okay. Here. Can I say that when I was rewatching this mm-hmm. uh, for maybe the third or fourth time for preparation for this, I will admit the flopping of the tongue actually did concern me. It's sad. And I, I don't know if I was being racist or whatever, but I was like, did the French kill a dog for this movie? <laughs> because no, I was like, I know for a fact well, he wasn't. Well, I, I read it that he wasn't. Okay. So. And I think I've, did a very quick Google search, which I mean by like I typed it into Google and I got distracted by the movie itself and then never actually, you know, whatever. <laughs> That's fair. But when I was seeing his tongue flop, I was like, holy shit. Cause I was like immediately struck by like being so used to certain movies on the Euro cult uh, thing from from a much earlier time, like the 70s and whatnot. Now, I didn't think they would actually have killed the dog. Sure. But 
it, it is that convincing of a performance from a canine. I'm saying that I was like, wait, I'm so confused. Maybe they didn't kill him, but did they find a dead dog that like they used? Maybe or they anesthetized him and he was asleep for a while. They do that a lot. Yeah, maybe but I did. think this dog was just that good. That kind of low. It could be. It was one of the most disturbing parts of the movie. Not the killing of it, even though it was. Right. But was the him carrying it with that tongue flopping around. I was like, holy shit. I know. I was just like that. That's commitment. That's a dog who takes it yeah. seriously. Oh, well, you know, showbiz is a doggy dog world. It is. Uh, oh, I, there is one little fun postscript. I don't know if you know this, but um, Alain Lalane, you know, plays Thomas. Uh, he's now a visual effects artist in Montreal. Oh, really? Yeah, and he's worked. He worked on like Children of Men, oh, wow. Gravity, Avatar, Edge of Tomorrow, aka Die Repeat. You know, blah, blah, blah. yeah, yeah. Uh, recently, The Batman. Shit. Yeah, and it's uh, he said he credited it partly to being around the set because they had this this rather large castle model for the you know aerial shots. You know, right, right. Which in one of the documentaries, you can see how big it is. It's like, it feels like a whole room. Oh, wow. Yeah. So he credited just being able to kind of run around as a kid between scenes or whatever and do that. So I thought that was kind of neat. Huh. Yeah. That is pretty cool. I thought so. Oh, good for him. Mm-hmm. Huh. Well, this episode is going on a little long. So let's bring it on in. Third time to charm. Yes. For final ratings. Uh, I'm going to go first. Go I'm going to say that I love this movie. I think it's great. I don't think it's perfect, but I think it's fantastic. I, I love every minute of it. I think even its tiny little you know, imperfections, whatever, can be easily ignored. And in general, it's just one of the greatest Christmas canon films for me. Mm. And it really straddles that line, of, too, of not being a true Christmas horror film that is like off-putting like you know disgusting and like oh you don't want to see santa claus chop up strippers right come on people this is gold right it's like uh like how just to interrupt for a second like yeah. how winnie the pooh and you know that went uh, into the public domain and now they're making a slasher it's like yeah guys what's what's there what's the thematic point of this nothing you're just you know agreed I yeah. totally agree and i will definitely be trying to figure that out while i watch that movie um so and uh, uh, I'll say this really quick as a side note. Sure. The only reason why that tickles me is because it's Disney related. And, you know, Disney is a horrible company and they should not be able to own this shit. So I agree. It's less about the like, oh, let's take a children's thing. And to me, it's more funny because it's like, oh, Disney would hate us if we did this. So let's do it. So anyway. Okay. I, I understand that. I just I always think of it as more of an A. Milne property first. But you're right. You're right. It's thoroughly Disney-fied. I, I mean, it should be thought of as that. Mm -hmm. But Disney was allowed to own it for some reason. <laughs> As they're allowed to own a lot of things that are not theirs for some reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway. Church. Yeah. But yeah, Daoko is Santa Claus. I think it's fantastic. I think it is uh, just a really, really touching a little piece of Christmas cheer. Mm. And you know what? It cheers me right up. That's for sure. So uh, yeah, I'm going to give this four out of five stars. I don't quite think it's uh, one of my all-time favorites, uh, but it's it's fantastic. So, uh, Dan Jeremy Brooks, what about you? Well, you know, it's funny. Um, I had a pretty good idea what, what I was going to do for the stars, but as we've been going, I, I kind of want to go higher uh, just because of just how fresh and unlike any other movie this is. I mean, overall, I found the whole film to be genuinely unpredictable. 
And as a consequence, it was genuinely suspenseful. Like, I really didn't know what was going to come next. And I mean, I had a pretty good idea they weren't going to kill the kid in the first act or whatever. But I mean, just the fact that the home invasion doesn't even occur until the beginning of act two. I mean, that, that, the, the craftsmanship of trisecting the script like that is just like a further tribute to, uh, Rene Manzor's storytelling gifts, uh, that he keeps our attention so thoroughly in that first act while withholding the quote shark, you know, as we were saying, that's pretty impressive. Um, so originally I was going to say four and a half. But honestly, because there's really nothing like it and it really swings for the fences, even though it's not perfect, which is absolutely true, I think I'm going to go five. Oh, my gosh. Damn, Jeremy. Brooks. I know. Five stars. I know. It's there. What what else is like it? I mean, I, I agree. Again, the only thing close to it is Home Alone, which is nothing like it. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. Uh, no matter how badly it wants to be. Um, mm. You know, what's funny is that obviously I seem a little low in mine as far as I mean, I gave it four, but uh, that actually is me raising it because technically when I logged it uh, three days ago mm. for the most recent time, I was still at a three and a half. But mm. I don't think it was until tonight when we articulated everything that I'm like, OK, I get it. I mean, like. I'm able to see why I'm drawn to it, you know, whatever. So, um, you know, it could go even higher, uh, maybe upon repeated viewing, but it definitely is an uh, undeniable little movie. Indeed. Now, you've seen it four times, you said? Yeah, three or four, I think. I saw it twice, pretty much in a row, but this was my first year. Yeah. I actually had not even... Well, okay, I didn't. I didn't think I had heard of it until last year. And then I realized when I saw the cover, I was like, oh, man, this was a movie that was on at the video store all the time. And I loved the cover art, but I had right. no idea what it was about. And I didn't ever even catch what the title was because of, well, yeah. you know, all that. So, yeah, it was great to finally, finally see it. And I love it. I'd only really heard about it about five or six years ago when I was looking into Christmas horror, like, thoroughly you know and, mm -hmm. and then this movie kept coming up as you know one of the few foreign language imports that a lot of people uh had seen in the states uh at least people who were looking for that sort of thing but i never got uh around to trying to like find a copy but then vinegar syndrome my favorite company in the entire world fuck you disney <laughs> um <laughs> graciously put out a great and pristine north american release and you can buy that even right now at least at the time of the recording of this podcast on 4k uhd blu-ray combo as if I wasn't already a shill for that company. Well, I, I actually own both that and the uh, camera and obscura version, which is a uh, region two, oh. but it's a German label. And honestly, there's I, I, the only thing I would say, and this is like, so not worth buying just for this reason, but it's a, the subtitles are just slightly more authoritative at times. Like, okay. There's times when the kid is saying things where like they, the vinegar syndrome translates it literally while the uh, camera obscura one translated like, no, no, this is an acronym for this like kind of um, programming thing he's doing, which I only uh, knew because okay. of my brother's background in this stuff. Right, right, right. That said, uh, they're both great. So, mazel tov to anyone who buys it. I agree. So, that is going to conclude our discussion of Dial Code Santa Claus. And now it's time for a segment Santa likes to call The A-List. <laughs> I 
what a beautiful theme song, as always. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, welcome to the segment called The A-List, where we take this B movie that we just <laughs> talked about, and we pair it with an A film. What is an A film? Well, I'm glad you asked, audience member. Mm-hmm. An A film, of course, in at least our eyes, is a film that is accessible. That's an A word for you. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, or acceptable. That's another mm-hmm. one for you. Uh, we look for the more popular pick to pair and make this B movie go down smooth in a adventurous double feature. Mm, so, a spoonful of A makes the B go down. Oh, I like that. Nice. Uh, good, good job. So, Dan, you mind if I go first for this? Oh, no, good. Okay, cool. Yeah, my A pick is thematically linked by uh, movies where children are seen and mm. heard. You know, like. This isn't an adult movie about children. This is a movie for children, about children. And it really gets to uh, the heart of what it's like to be a child, which so many movies can never actually capture. The rare one does come along every once in a while, and I think this one certainly does. Both Dial Code, Santa Claus, and the movie that I'm going to mention, which is Spike Jones, Where the Wild Things Are. Oh, of course, Nice. Yeah, based off of the classic Maury Sendak book uh, that a lot of us have read. Maybe not everybody, but uh, I grew up with it. And um, yeah, when that adaptation came out, the 2009 adaptation, mm-hmm. I believe, you know, I was a senior in high school. And of course, it was, the book was formative in my childhood, but I hadn't quite thought about the book in a while. But when I saw that this movie was coming out and it was being directed by Spike Jones of all people, and, you know, I was like, what is, you know, whatever. And then. It came out, and I saw it, and I was blown away. Uh, I actually haven't really revisited it since because of how (laughs) I thought profound it was at capturing those uh, moments of what it's like to be a child and not yet an adult, where you're old enough to navigate the world, but you're too young to truly carve out your own space in it just yet you're still at the mercy of the adults in your life and frankly you don't have quite the emotional intelligence just yet i mean Mm -hmm. it's 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 blooming but to deal with the other children in your life if for example something is not uh, copacetic And, and of course max's journey in that movie is very similar to something like Dow Code Santa Claus, not in the sense that he's being terrorized at every turn, because he's not, but he's reminded time and time and again that his playful flights of fantasy are something that's unfortunately going to dissipate at, at a certain point in his life, and it's maybe time to start realizing that these emotional outbursts that you do have are something that you can outgrow in the same way you're going to outgrow the good stuff. And I feel like that's, you know, kind of, obviously not the exact same message as something like Dial Code Santa Claus, but they both have an extremely empathetic approach to a a child's eye view without being condescending and um, without fucking it up, really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, for me, it's uh, 2009's Where the Wild Things Are. Mm, Great choice, great film. And then, you know, when you, the way you described it, it did strike me as very much like that, uh, Bruno Bettelheim quote at the beginning of, uh, Code Sansa, where, sure. you know, which kids will retain this magic and which will not. And what, for what reason do they? And, um, maybe for Max, he's able to 
kind of um, absorb and ingest these these stories and these fables and uh, reach maturity without harming his, his imaginative and emotional life. You know, that's the hope anyway. So uh, great choice, man. Love that movie. I've Thank only you. seen it once, too. So I'm curious to revisit it sometime, but I haven't dared yet. So, hmm. yeah. And what say you, Dan Jeremy Brooks? What is your A-list pick? Well, I have five films. No. <laughs> yeah, I know no, you I do. Don't. No, I only have one. And I have a mute mm. button. Bloop! No, um, I have... Um, mine is um, a very unusual film. It's uh, Toys from 1992. Oh, yes. Damn. It's Barry Levinson's like first film that was considered like an outright unmitigated disaster by the critics i mean and ever since then he's yeah. kind of been hit or miss some of his stuff's great but it sort of broke the spell the levinson spell you know because he had that run in the 80s into the early 90s it was well he went from baltimore to the north pole it just you know it wasn't <laughs> no i'm just kidding actually i don't even remember where toys is supposed to take well place. It's, it's kind of in a no such place it's it's very fable like um right yeah it might as well be the north pole because it's so disconnected from semblance of reality right. or not reality but oh. like uh, a collective existence right right i mean there's these incredibly lush rolling hills that are like something out of a grant wood landscape where you're like whoa that's a lot of hill you know it, it's almost like what you're saying about jeepers creepers where they're going up the hill and down but i mean in this case it's not foreboding and frightening but anyway uh i've always liked the movie and probably more so now than ever i remember seeing it um christmas evening when it came out or christmas or well, it was either Christmas or Thanksgiving. I can't remember now, but it was a major holiday. And I remember going with some friends and it was very much more unusual than I had expected. Um, most of the action takes place in a toy company in Idaho, in theory. And the plot is sort of a redux of Hamlet with, you know, the favorite son who's played by Robin Williams being passed over by his dying father in favor of his uncle, who's played by Michael Gambon. Uh, the casting for the most part, I think is inspired, like even gutsy at times. And, uh, Ferdinando Scarfiotti's set design is almost without precedent. I mean, even to this day, you know, it's like, again, you know, think Rene Magritte meets the oversized sets in Brazil or, or Little Caesar or something like that. But the thing that I, makes me wanted to recommend it, it was there were certain parts in uh, Code Santa, which I specifically felt, I found myself thinking about this movie Toys, which I hadn't really thought about in a long time. It's this really uneasy mix of holiday wonderment and like cataclysmic, sweeping, moodily lit destruction, you know, odd angles and the brutality of in even some of the comic moments, as well as the debate it kind of raises about producing like realistic war -tours. Well, I mean, that's really front and center in that film. And, you know, the coming age of drone warfare, uh, it's just this film just seemed for some reason, it kept coming to the forefront of my mind. And also the beginning street scenes and the later shots of the performers outside the department store in code reminded me a great deal of toys, which begins with a, a very highly unexpected and like delicately, very gauzy Christmas play that's being, I think, put on by the children of the toy company employees, basically. And it's so it's it's like this very beautiful kind of winter uh, pageant. It's it's not you know Christian, but it's it's just gorgeous. And it, and the film ends with that. So a book ends with that at Christmas again. And in, in toys, there's even like a large warehouse similar to Thomas's like you know secret room with all of his father's toys. 
In this case, it's all of Robin Williams' father's toys. Uh, in this case, his inventions. And they're all stored and arranged like, you know, the cover of Sgt. Pepper's. <laughs> You know, so I'm wondering if this one might be uh, ripe for a little critical reevaluation because when it first came out, the critics dogpiled on top of it, which is maybe always a good sign. You should check it out for yourself. I agree. I I remember when I was a child, we rented the VHS, and I remember I remember that I I don't think I finished it. <laughs> well, it, it's got some adult themes that are kind of like yeah, and I not just that remember, it's like disturbing, but just it would go over your head, you know. Well, and also it's like Robin Williams on the cover, so I'm like, okay, this is going to be like Mrs. Doubtfire, Flubber, mm-hmm. or whatever else I was into when I was you know right. young or whatever, and, and it just obviously isn't any of that or whatever. And so I finally watched it really for the first time, like start to finish about four or five years ago at my friend uh, Sarah's house. And, oh, nice. You know, I don't think I loved it, but I very much liked it. It is definitely, it is one of those movies where I can't believe it got me. <laughs> and sometimes that's like the baseline of where I can start with appreciation because it's just so interesting and fascinating and there's nothing else quite like it. And and I would say all, all of those things about this movie. And uh, But, you know, the more that time has passed since that initial first view, and I may have even watched it another one other time now Ooh. since then. I don't know that it's destined to become a classic, but I definitely think a reappraisal is in order because it is such a product of something that we've lost as far as that level of studio filmmaking with no limitations, seemingly, you know, yeah. uh, in its uh, production design or whatever. And frankly, I thought it was passable. Uh, like, when it just came to being, like, the story being told and characters, and, you know, like, there were some good moments, there were some whatever. But I definitely think more people should uh, revisit that and, and reevaluate it. At the very least, I don't think it deserves the uh, outright dismissal that it I think understandably mm-hmm. got when it first came out. You know, there's always something to be said about timing. Sure. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's actually pretty interesting. Well, yeah, I, I agree with pretty much everything you're saying. I mean, I think the the biggest problem with film is that it's a relatively odd, stilted performance, Robin Williams, where sometimes he's, they kind of let him go loose. And then other times, well, and I guess maybe it reflects the character who's like Hamlet, where he's like, he's supposed to act, but he hasn't acted yet. And it's like, well, how long are you going to wait? And things are getting worse and worse. Right. So right. I, I wondered if maybe that's part of it. Um, I, I, but I, you're right. I mean, this is a film that is very much a singular product of a single mind. I mean, it's very much cinema folly in that regard. I mean, it's, you know, Barry Levinson built up like 15 years of cachet in order to make this movie and basically this ended it for him but he made this incredible work and there is nothing that's another reason why i probably failed but mm. there's nothing in his previous works that suggests <laughs> toys not you at know, all like, i agree he wasn't doing these small scale commentaries on whimsy and whatever <laughs> right like, he was doing these very great but you know down to earth just talky comedies you know that's just whatever mm-hmm. And then the moment he got that money, I i mean, good for him. He's like, okay, I can't, I may never get inside the room again. So, you know, and maybe he should have worked up to it, but whatever. He he made it and he made it his own. So. He did. And it's, it, like I said, I mean, just the look of it alone is completely unlike anything else. Um, I mean, there's, there's a scene 
inside the factory where they're on he and his uncle are riding on a golf cart and they're um because that's apparently how his uncle likes to travel everywhere and they have to stop in the middle of a corridor because a group of um mechanical ducks yes come out of a wall and have to walk across and i get there's a guy there with a sign stopping them so that the ducks can cross and there's no comment made about it they're like even the uncle who thinks all that stuff is crap even he's like well yeah that's something that happens yeah takes for granted right and those are the kind of moments that um make it pretty extraordinary so like i said it's 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 cinema folly uh in in the best grandest way i suppose uh it's actually speaking of i wanted to say about uh leos carax um Earlier, I said I couldn't think of the name of the movie. Speaking of follies. Thinking of follies, exactly. His famous one from 1991 was called uh, The Lovers on the Bridge, I believe. Let me just double check. That was the one he was working on for years that went way over budget with Juliette Binoche. And um, yeah, The Lovers on the Bridge. But I did want to say one other thing. He did do one film between that and uh, Holy Motors. It was a film called Pola X. From 1999, I have not seen, uh, hmm. but it's considered kind of one of the opening salvos of the new French extremity, uh, not for violence, but for sexual content. So I haven't seen it. Tell me more. <laughs> You're like, go on. <laughs> so I assume it's visually stunning. And uh, I I don't know anything other than that. I think uh, it's based on a Melville novella, but not one I had ever really been familiar with. So anyway, I just wanted to say that I was a little bit wrong about that. He didn't completely break. There was one in the middle, which again, I don't think it was overly successful. Well, I'm glad you came forward with that. I will make it a little harder to trust you Mm -hmm. uh, in the future, but you know, I deserve that. We'll see what we can uh, maybe accomplish if you straighten up your act. Uh, But in the spirit of Christmas, I'm willing to forgive you. Oh, so that's sweet. Yeah. All right, I'll take it. Oh, okay, well, I mean, I'm, I'm, thank you, I guess. I, that wasn't really a choice, but sure. Well, yeah. I mean, like, thank you. No, like, I'm, I'm forgiving you. Right. So I don't know that you need to take it. Like, I, I do the forgiving around here. Okay. Right. Right. And I, not you. I forgive that you forgive. Is what I'm saying. And I thank you, and take the forgiving that you forgave for me. Okay, I feel like you're undermining my forgiveness with uh, whatever it is you're trying to forgive. Okay. And frankly, I don't, I, I don't want to say it, but it may be an unforgivable. Well, offense. Nick, the problem is, is that you think forgiveness is something that can get spread too thin. It's not pie. Okay, you don't run out of slices of forgiveness. Everyone can get some. That, no, that's absolutely not true. That's the I Christmas can only spirit. Forgive so much. <laughs> nope. And on that, mm. <laughs> I feel like I'm just like. <laughs> that was hilarious. So, no, oh, I'll, cut all, I'll cut all that crap at the end. So, or don't. Well, whatever. whatever. Merry Christmas, listeners. Uh, let's see here. Uh, yeah, that'll about do it for us here at Project Exploitation. You can reach out to us uh, at projectexploitation at gmail.com. Of course, Project Exploitation is spelled P-R-O-J-E-X-P-L-O-I-T-A-T-I-O-N. And you can find us at projectexploitation.com. You can find us on Twitter at ProjectsPod. You can find us on Instagram at Projects Pod. I uh, may be sensing a theme there. Uh, feel free to reach out to us with suggestions, complaints, whatever you want. But 
at the end of the day, I hope you all have a wonderful holiday season. Uh, it's been a long mm. year, couple years, mm. and uh, hopefully this podcast was at least one twinkly light on your tree. So uh, A twinkly, big, colorful bulb, a big, fat one. Yes. Uh, so from all of us, including myself, Nick Cheney, my co-host, Dan Jeremy Brooks, mm-hmm. and of course, our good friend, Santa Claus. <laughs> I'm still here! Yeah, okay, buddy, you shut up. Uh, <laughs> have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your holiday season, and uh, we'll see you on the next reel. needs an end, Max. I... I don't have an end.